welcome to Deadhead Space. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which now includes YouTube. That's right. You can actually watch our episodes. Just search Deadhead Space. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we're talking with a returning guest from season one, author of The Rue and his new book, The Gulp, Alan Baxter. How are you, sir? I'm well. I'm well. Recurring character. That's good. It's nice to get back to season two. Now I have to cameo in every future season. Just a quick recap for potential listeners that have just tuned in for the first time. Uh, we recorded with Alan back in May, tw- May 12, 2020. That was the 14th episode we recorded. So we've come a long ways. Uh, and by that, I mean baby steps. So what have you been up to since then? Far out. May 2020 was about four <laughs> years ago, right? Certainly um, feels that way. <laughs> oh, your, yeah. your beard and my beard has grown white. <laughs> I got <laughs> white. I got white hairs. <laughs> To be fair, my beard came in white this time. It's uh, like I, I had one in my like mid twenties, and then I hadn't had one since. And then I decided to grow it back, and it's like, oh, holy shit, that used to be brown. So yeah, is that a pandemic uh, beard? YouTube, listen, the YouTube fans, isn't that good content for a podcast? So uh, <laughs> what have I what have I been doing since since May? Well, um, the right after I spoke to you guys, the sequel to Recall, uh, the Manifest Recall came out, which was Recall Night. That came out in the middle of the year. Um, that, so that was the second Eli Carver uh, novella. Um, and since then, The Rue came out at the start of last year. <clears throat> and now I've just put out The Gulp. So to be honest, since I spoke to you guys, The Gulp kind of became my sort of pandemic project. So yeah, that, that mostly what I've been doing is, is writing and editing and well, everything involved, and then putting that one out. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much. I've been, I've been, I'm working on other stuff. I'm always working on something, but uh, nothing that's current. The current thing I'm actually working on is with Dave Wood. We're doing the third Sam Aston book at the moment, so we're about a quarter of the way through that. So that's kind of fun. Nice. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you know what? Fuck it. Let's get right into the gulp. <laughs> that's what the people want. Um, so my first question. Want is let's hear kind of how the idea for it came about uh specifically into in regards to it being a mosaic novel um what made you think this is the way i want to go with my next project okay um yeah all right so so that's kind that's kind of two-sided on the one hand um when when I did the rule at the start of last year, it was it was a bit of a gag. You guys, you know, you guys were in on it. It was all a bit of fun, uh, and then it just kind of went gangbusters. People really got into it, which is just fantastic. It's stunning to me how how well that book's done and how well received it's been, which is just so cool. Um, but it made me realise how much people were keen on Australian horror. Like everybody was loving the fact that it was as Australian as it was. Um, and I'd always been, an, I, you know, I hadn't shied away from that. A lot of my short fiction was Australian with my Alex Kane series. The protagonist is Australian. It starts in Australia. It keeps coming back here. So I've never shied away from it. But then, like, Devouring Dark was a novel set in London. Hidden City was a novel set in um, a fictional American town. Um, but when The Rue came out and everybody was just so into the Australian setting, 
I started thinking, oh, well, you know what? I had this idea knocking around in my head for a while about creating this kind of um, fictional, bizarre, weird Australian town. And yeah, I did the Outback thing with the Rue, and the Outback is its own special kind of weird. <clears throat> um, but I'd long since been sort of toying around with the idea of this because I live in a harbour town. So I live in a country town on the south coast of New South Wales and right near where I am is a local harbour town and it's it's just got this unique sort of Australian vibe about it. So you get the you get the sort of the remoteness, you get the Australian country town thing, you get the, the harbour town and everything that goes on with a town that's built around the sea and built around the harbour. And I'm only a couple of hours from Sydney, so I'm not nearly as remote as the Gulf is, but I've been visiting those places lots when I go further south down the coast. So I wanted to create this kind of gestalt fictional town that was basically all those sorts of things kind of crammed together, but then even more sort of isolated. And But, I, you know, it was this kind of idea that had been knocking around for a while, and I was like, you know, that's a bit niche, who knows? There's this, you know, there's some mad ideas could go with it. But I never really got to do it. And then sort of two things that sort of happened at once. The Rue was really popular and people were really into Australian horror. Um, and at the same time, the, the world just turned to shit. I mean, it had been going bad for, you know, for a few years, but everything that had been going on and then the, pan the pandemic kicked in and I was, because I also run a Kung Fu school, was my like, sort of my day job is, is that. So I had to really pivot on that and figure out how to start delivering that online and all sorts. So I couldn't concentrate on any big projects. And so I just went, you know what, fuck it. I'm, I'm going to occupy my writing brain with those things. So I'm going to start writing. Because I knew that the stories that I could set in this town would could potentially be interlinked, could, could, you know, they could, they could be recurring characters and recurring places and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. I just had two particular ideas for two stories I could set in this, in this imaginary place. So I was like, okay, well, uh, that's what I'm going to do. Well, I can't concentrate on big projects and I can't, you know, I've got to figure out what's going on with the pandemic and everything else. And I homeschooling my kid for a while because, you know, he, that kicked in. So it was like, I'm just going to write these stories and see where it goes. And so I wrote, the two stories I had in mind were sort of established already in what was the gulf in my head. So I started out by going, right, I need an introduction to the gulf for myself, but for readers as well. So I wrote, out on a rim, which was going to, which ended up being the first story of the five in the in the book. Um, and then after that, I was just away. I just spent the next few months just writing these stories. And and as soon as I wrote that first one, and I knew a couple of others that were in mind, and I was like, okay, I can see where this is going now. And this had all been boiling around in the in the brain meat for a while. And so you know, the subconscious did its thing. Um, so I just started writing these things, and I kind of knew this arc that was going to be involved. And I you know list, listed it as. Tales from the Gulf number one in the hope that it was popular enough that I would get to write more stories set in this place. And uh, it, it's looking looking positive on that front. People saying things like, you know, I, I found my castle rock and people are always keen for more stories from the Gulf. People are kind of in love with this town, which is awesome because it's been in my head for a while. Uh, so, yeah, so that's what it came down to. Success of the Rue and a pandemic and it kind of pushed me into doing this project. And because of the pandemic and everything else and because it was so niche, I was like, you know, I'm not even going to bother looking for publishers and dealing with this i put the rue out on my own as a joke which kind of you know that re-oiled all those gears of self-publishing which i hadn't done for you know a decade or more but i kind of refound how that worked and i was like yeah that was a that was kind of fun so i was like fuck it i'm just going to do the same with the golf so basically sort of wrote it and produced it and got an editor on board and got a living cover designer thankfully well a living artist at least 
bit of my own cover design and then we just kind of put the whole thing together so that just became the project for the year i remember when you uh and i told brennan like right right after we talked when you reached out to me to like just kind of pitch it i, I was like uh yeah alan i want to read that right now <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing. When I started thinking about it, I was like, you know, am I just like tripping here? Because the Rue is a, a different thing, you know. It's just such a gonzo splatter monster fest. It's just you know, <laughs> such fun. Um, is that, am, I, am I sort of reaching here to think? So I asked you and I asked a couple of people, a couple of people who I know are, are big fans who kind of know the industry but who, you know, from a writing perspective, but who are also just reader fans. I just three or four people I reached out to, including yourself. And just said, how does this sound? What do you think? And everybody came back and was like, just get on and write the fucking thing because that sounds great. So, okay, cool. I'll, well, I will then. <laughs> I love the uh, the the combination of uh, a a murderous kangaroo in the outback novel or novella combined with a pandemic. Like, what an extremely specific set of circumstances <laughs> leads to that. Seriously, I mean, at the end of last year. Uh, it was like late November, early December, sorry, the year before, 2019, when this whole thing with this new story and Keelan mocking up that cover and everything all happened with the Rue. Um, it seems that sort of from that point on, for the next 12 months, that was actually about four years long, just these weird fucking combinations of stuff has been occurring and it's ended up producing, which in some ways is kind of cool, you know. I would really rather there wasn't a pandemic. I miss traveling and seeing people and all that shit and everybody's dying. It's fucked up. But it's, it is also kind of forcing other things. It's, it's, it's interesting how it's like with my Kung Fu score, it's forcing us to adapt to an online world. It's making other things. It's proving that some things are bullshit and we've just been hanging on to them when we really don't need to. And it's been proving that other things are possible if we just kind of change our thinking to account for it. So... It's, uh, yeah, it does kind of feel like the whole of 2020 has been a bit of this kind of weird rebirth through necessity kind of thing. You are the one that I saw, it might have been other people that posted this, but pertaining to pandemic conversations, you wrote a hilarious tweet that said something along the lines of uh, if this was a zombie movie or a zombie novel, um, that it would be people going in their homes. I correct me if I'm wrong, people going in their homes complaining that they uh, aren't having their freedoms taken away by boarding up their windows. Yeah, I can't remember exactly. There's something along those lines. It's like, you know, it's, the pandemic has proven that, you know, close to half the population would just willingly go out and walk among the zombies. I mean, <laughs> the whole thing is a hoax. And then be fucking surprised when they when they got fit and then turned into a zombie. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's uh, not... It's, it... Yeah, I was going to say, it's not an original sentiment at all, but I've seen so many times, you know, uh, people people who look at a horror movie and judge the characters for acting ridiculously. Mm. It's like, okay, we can't do that anymore. Uh, uh, we, we can't judge anymore. Someone goes into a dark basement. Yep. <laughs> Idiots. They'll do it. There, there is nothing people won't do. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's long proven now. You can do what you like in horror now. And if, if a pandemic wasn't bad enough, well, guess what? Somehow the end of uh, Trump's reign will have a terrorist attack and there will be people that are like, yeah, that's cool. They had swastikas and fucking uh, that guy had one guy had an Auschwitz disgusting sh- sweater on. 
the guy was wearing. Yeah, yeah. And now these guys are saying, now these guys are all going, oh, you know, I, I feel cheated. I just did what Trump told me to do. It's like, oh, you were just following orders? Like, for fuck's sake, it's not like there's not precedent for this bullshit. But, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It's, a- it's mind-boggling. It's like, you know, just say a spade's a spade. If those white people were fucking Arabic or whatever, or if it was the 1940s and they were Japanese and it was Pearl Harbor, you know that they're all going to go into some kind of fucked up internment camp or, or something's going to happen to them. Just compare the response to the Black Lives Matter protests, which were peaceful protests, to yep. the response to an armed assault on a Capitol building, and that's, that's, that's all you need to know. They're already letting people out. Like, there's, there's people that are in jail... Um, for the minor offences and they're getting 12-year prison terms and there's a woman who stole Nancy Pelosi's laptop uh, and was planning to sell it to the Russians and she's already been let out of prison. It's like, you know, it's just, it, it's white privilege um, just on blatant displays. Yeah, the whole thing is, is horrible. Uh, and the overall disgraceful nature of it is just so uh, over the top, I guess, is the first word that springs to mind. Just the fact that Alan, you're a you're a British born citizen who lives in Australia. I, I don't want to say you don't have a dog in this fight because frankly, you know, the 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 whole world is watching. But you know, for you for somebody who doesn't live in this country and doesn't have roots in this country to be so outspoken on the matter is just a testament to how fucked up it is. Just how blatantly well, bad. Yeah, it's true, but it's also I mean in, in many ways, you're right. We, they, I don't have a dog in the fight. I don't give a fuck about America. I know way more about American politics than I ever really wanted to know. I know how your politics works, and I don't need that knowledge in here. I need to, I need to remember how bodies decompose and shit for the stuff that I write. But I, we do have dogs in the fight because we have a prime minister who is basically the sort of person who looks up to Trump and sort of things that Trump does. Britain has a prime minister who is basically like a fumbling Mr. Mr. Bean version of fucking Trump. Like these, when a country as big and powerful as America sets those kinds of precedents, it echoes out around the world and it frees up people. We have, I have seen Trump stickers on the back of cars in Australia, which is fucking ridiculous. But it's just basically them saying, this racist fascist really resonates with how I want the world to be. I wish, I wish more places in the world were like that. And so because the world is connected, we, we do have a dog in this fight. You know, what goes on in America does echo out. We consume so much American media in the, in the form of movies and games and books and everything else. We always have. America, it's this weird sort of dichotomy in as much as, you know, there's, there's Trump there going, make America great again, and we're all out here going, when the fuck was America ever great? You know, it's always been kind of a joke, the whole, the, the whole American dream thing. But equally, it has also produced some of the most amazing media and it has this massive influence on the world. Um, and there are aspects of American life and aspects of America which are just fantastic. But they're not the racist fascist. That's not what people look up to. But when those people rise and America is so um, sort of embedded in culture, then that rises everywhere. You know, the rise of the right is especially that far right and that kind of fascist tendency, that rise echoes. So when it's strong in America, it becomes strong everywhere else that's allied with America, which includes that's, us, which includes Britain, which includes all sorts of places. That's a really good answer. And I uh, withdraw my dog in the fight statement. Uh, the, <laughs> I wish you know, and, and, my dog in the fight. This is the thing. I really, <laughs> wish, I really wish we weren't so influenced. 
but but uh, that's that's just it. Is you you made such a good case for you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our prime minister is, is at the moment is appalling. I, we we have a conservative prime minister who's basically like a vanilla version of, of Trump. He would love to be as far as as blatantly fascistic as Trump, and in some ways he's more dangerous because he's under the radar shit. You know, so yeah. Boris is a fucking idiot. Um, I am. <laughs> I am curious to see what comes out of this. Uh, for, it's going to affect things for years to come, man. Like, w- what kind of art's going to come out of it? I'm sure that people are working on things as we speak. I mean, I'm not going to get heavy and bore you guys. This is about you, but, like, I'm working on a young adult sci-fi fantasy that's nothing like I've ever written. And uh, January 6th somehow seeped into there because it kind of tied in. I'm like, all right, that was unexpected. So it's it just, it's it's gonna, you're gonna see a lot of weird things come out of that day. Yeah, well, I mean, we bleed on the page. That's what, that's what we do when we're driven to write because that's how we process. So most of the time, what we process is our life and our experience and our um, emotional states at the time and what we see around us. When When you have global events that have such a massive impact that can't help but also come through so on the one hand i pity the number of publishers who are going to be digging through pandemic novels in their slush for the next five years um but equally you know it it is a thing that happens i think it's also kind of important to recognize that this this kind of takes back to that thing where it bugs me sometimes when people talk about, oh, you know, that that pain that you're experiencing, that's okay because you're going to produce great art. That kind of pisses me off because you can produce great art without great trauma and great pain. It's true that amazing art can come from trauma and pain. That doesn't mean that you need it to produce great art. You know, there are plenty of well-adjusted people making really good and powerful art in any form, you know, writing or whatever. So... Yeah, it's a little bit dangerous to kind of think about that in terms of, oh, you know, the world is such a shit fire at the moment. Hey, at least we're going to get good art, which is true because we are, because people are going to respond to it and people are going to bleed that out. Um, but I, I always find that it's important to try to not reinforce that idea that it kind of becomes necessary for good art because it's a, that's a bit of a danger. It's like the whole starving artist bullshit, you know, it's like, I would love to be making enough money that I don't have to count pennies to make bills and all that sort of stuff. I don't need to be starving to write good books. You know, I can write good books many ways. I'll write more books when I'm not starving because I'll be thinking less about getting food and I'll think more about writing. So, yeah, there's some stereotypes sort of that persist that can in some ways be a little bit counterproductive. But equally, you're absolutely right. There is going to be all kinds of really interesting stuff that will be produced as a result of this like the last recent history absolutely brandon you got anything else because uh, if not i want to jump back into the gulp no i'm actually trying to remember how we even got on this track but yeah let's go back to the gulp um i actually i i think it's really interesting that you uh said that you ended up writing uh out on a rim as kind of an introduction for yourself because i loved how you you know l- later novellas in the book um kind of deal with the insider's perspective they people who know the town well people who have lived in the town all their life um but the that very first one is almost completely uh outsider's perspective so you kind of bring the reader in and then through the next four that follow that you don't let them leave 
Um, now, was that a conscious choice to put that one first, or was it just because it was the intro uh, for you? No, it was very much a choice to do it that way. There's, um, I mean, I could have just sort of, I could have just started writing stories in the Gulf and just let people sort of learn about it from the stories as they occurred. Like, I mean, if you imagine the book, if it was, for example, say it was four stories long and that first story wasn't even there, ideally, you know, it would still work fine. Um, each of the five stories in it are very much standalone stories. They're sort of self-contained, even though the recurring characters in the overarc sort of travels to make the whole thing something of a mosaic. Um, but then it was because I'd had this idea growing. This is often the case for me when I'm working on things. When I'm at, when I actually start working on something, it's usually something that's been ticking away in the background for a while. Normally, because I've got. I think it's the same with most writers. I've got way more ideas than I have time to write, you know, so I'm constantly like three quarters of the way through a book and start getting excited about the next thing I'm going to write. And it's like, focus, but say, finish what you're doing. Um, but it means that things tend to boil away in the background while I'm working on other things. And so in some ways, the gulp was pretty well formed in my mind when I, before I even started on it. Plus, like I said, it's sort of a gestalt entity of lots of places around here. I mean, you know, if you were to lay a street map of my local town over a street map of the Gulf, they'd line up pretty well. You know, it's like it's because it's just, that's kind of in my head, even though it's set much further down the coast and whatever else. And so I had to decide, well, do I just drop people in and just let them discover this town through its weirdness? Or do I basically say to everyone, hey, come and have a look at this place and take them in in the first instance? And because I knew that there was going to be like considerable weirdness that goes on in the Gulf, especially, you know, with the second story with, with Mother in Bloom, it's, it kind of is a bit full on if you just drop straight in there. It would work fine if you did, <clears throat> but if you already had that outsider's perspective going into the Gulf and getting sort of swallowed by it, and then you're introduced to people who have grown up there, then you kind of buy into their mindset and the sort of things they would do a lot more easily. So by, by, by bringing an outsider in and setting everything up, it kind of, helps us suspend disbelief about everything else that can occur in a town like that. I, um, <clears throat> from the age of 18 to 20, I was a teamster. Uh, I delivered, I was a driver's helper. So I was in all kinds of trucks, never 18 wheelers, but pretty big trucks delivering yeah. booze throughout Massachusetts. And there's some nights when I had a four, a lot of times I had 14 hour shifts and uh, I would learn about my state and parts that I normally wouldn't go to. There were there were a lot of parts in the uh, neighboring towns of Boston that you don't want to be there at night. Uh, it's not nice. You could tell. Uh, and the best example to sum up my experience was I specifically remember where it's morning time. You know, you start super early because you got to get there before the competitor uh, trucks get there. There's no parking. Uh, Boston had a terrible design of streets apparently back in the day. But uh this one driver said, I'm going to go in there and deliver it inside. You stay on the outside of the truck where the doors open. The reason <laughs> for that is because you, I'm like, he goes, you don't look now, but there's people right now watching you because as soon as we both go in there or they know that we're not watching them watching us, they'll come and steal this stuff. It's thousands of dollars of booze. And, you don't want to go back to your six foot six tall Italian boss that swears every other fucking word and uh, piss him off. 
<laughs> so my whole point in the way it relates to the gulp is the way I learned about the uh, city and uh, really strange parts of Massachusetts. One was New Bedford, which is a, that was like the capital of Whalen back in the 1800s, I think. And it similar in the sense where it's a sea town um, only it's kind of ghettoized now, but that's how I learned through the truck driver teaching me as a young driver's helper. So that struck a chord with me on a personal level and I loved it. Um, and I'd probably respond the same way to the, as the young driver to the older driver, like it's not a big deal. The old guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So yeah, that, I know, loved you, it. I loved it. I'm glad to hear it, man. Yeah. You, you take that basic principle and you just kind of stretch it out. It's like everyone's been told, oh, yeah, it's not a place you want to be after <laughs> Or, you know, I just get in and I get out. It's too weird for me. And, it, and, you know, as well because the guy, you know, he's the new kid. He's taken over the group, the driving route, and he's like, you know, uh, this guy's just fucking with me. He's trying to wind me up or whatever else. So, you know, it's very easy to drop someone into a situation like that. And it's one of the things I think that's really important when you're writing horror um, is that when we're sitting there reading it, we're reading a horror story. So we know we're reading a horror story. So we know shit's going to go down because that's what we're there for. That's why we're reading. The people in the story, they, they, they don't know they're in a horror story. They're just, they're just doing their thing. And so a lot of the time when it's like, don't do that, you're crazy, like we were talking about before, people would do the maddest shit. A lot of the time, well, as is proven, they would even with proof that it's horrible. But when people don't, when people assume they're just getting on with their day and they're not in a horror story, they'll just go, yeah, but don't be silly. And they go on. Because that's how it goes, you know. When horror occurs in real life, it, we, you don't see it coming. If you see it coming, you run away. So, yeah, it, it, that's, a, that's a fine balance, I think, when you're writing horror. You need to be able to play into that normality that people assume while knowing that your audience knows they're reading a horror novel, you know. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tricky balance to find. But, yeah, people remembering the characters don't know that they're in a horror story. At least at the beginning, they don't know that they're in a horror story. They tend to find out quite quickly. Um, yeah, I think that's a good starting point. The thing that I like about your writing, too, is you um, y- you skip right through the boring stuff. Like, you're there for the delivery. You don't have to s- sit through a second of them doing a trivial you know, delivery process and you just get to the good part and it gets creepy in weird ways. Like each story, it builds off of each other. And and if it's okay with you guys, I'd like to jump around. Um, Brandon, why don't you start with, we share the fate art. We both have a favorite story in this sense, 48 to go. Uh, I mean, that alone should just like win an award because holy shit. <laughs> Thanks. Now, see, interestingly enough, just a, a slight tangent, when I said I had two stories in my head that I knew I wanted to write in the golf, but I needed to set it up, that was that was one. That story's been in my head for a while. Yeah. And it seems to be a bit, it does seem to be a bit, different people have different favorites. It's interesting. Uh, but that one definitely seems to crop up quite often. Um, I, I don't think this will ruin anything, but uh, recently... We acquired a pet guinea pig because my wife, uh, she's a social worker, was watching it for <laughs> her patient, and she sadly departed, and uh, now it's oh, ours. So uh, I was eating lunch when I was reading that story. I'm not going to get into details, but I had to put your book down, dude. I couldn't read it while I was eating lunch. <laughs> Compliment that is right there. <laughs> Brendan, all you, man, I got to hear what you have to say about it. 
So uh, about, I actually kind of have a wider theory, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could either confirm it or debunk it. When I when I look at the five stories in this book, it it seems to me like I could pigeonhole each one into a horror subgenre. Like, um, you know, if we if we treat Out on a Rim as the intro, I kind of see Mother in Bloom as a little bit of a coming of age story. Um, the band plays on like that's your cosmic story. Um, 48 to go definitely shares a lot of the fast paced beats with, uh, but of course the supernatural overtones with, um, uh, like the Eli Carver novels. And then, uh, the rock Fisher is, you know, fits nicely into body horror. I was just wondering if, you know, giving the reader a variety was a conscious choice. If you tried to write in multiple subgenres, almost like you would treat a short story collection to give a wide array. Mm, yeah. Okay. So it, Partly yes, and partly I <clears throat> I just never met a genre I didn't like. Um, I tend to, generally speaking, what I tend to write is mostly horror, liberally sort of mixed up with dark fantasy and crime. That tends to be my kind of, my main sort of focus bit. Stuff like the Eli Carver books tend to push a little bit more towards the crime. Uh, stuff like um, Hidden City, for example, pushes a bit more towards the, the fantastical um, but <clears throat> I did kind of very much have in mind that I'm trying. I'm trying to think of ways to do it without really giving too much away. But but yes. Yeah, so I mean, you, you're dead right in, in the in one instance. Mother in Bloom very much is a coming of age story. Um, the the band plays on is kind of is my sort of Lost Boys homage. Um, so it's kind of like. If the Lost Boys was cosmic horror, you know, <clears throat> um, rather than rather than actually vampires. Um, Forty Eight to Go very much is is the crime story. Um, equally, in Forty Eight to Go, the sort of the catalyst for it is this Carter character who crops up a lot. He's obviously a very sort of powerful person in the Gulf, and there's, you know, if I get to write more stories, there'll be you know more to do with him and and other stuff. And there is other things, you know, other callbacks that I can sort of get to if I get to write more I can I get to write more stories on it but yeah I didn't really sort of specifically split them up genre wise but they they did just kind of when it comes to that sort of natural progression I didn't want stories that were too similar because like, they needed to sort of have like the different focus and so yeah the first story was the introduction the second story was a coming of age story with young protagonists the third story was that the third story, the band plays on in 48 to go were the two stories in the golf that I had in mind for a long time. Those were the two I wanted to write and the others came around. Um, and to actually Mother in Bloom was a story I originally started doing as a short story and it didn't quite work out and I put it aside thinking I've got to rework that. And then when I started thinking about the golf, I was like, oh, hang on, that, that's where that story goes. Um, so, so yeah, I just, I do tend to blur genres together, but it was important that there was a different sort of protagonist focus with each story, even though, you know, the, the, the age range of protagonists is, you know, like 16 to 50 kind of thing, but it, that focus is a little bit sort of different. So, uh, yeah, it's not, it, wasn't, it wasn't especially conscious um, what I did where, but it was conscious that I put that variety through. And to try to throw, to show as wide a cross-section within the Gulf as I could of the sort of people who live there, um, especially like in Mother in Bloom, particularly when you've got those two kids and then you've got <clears throat> the son, Zach, and his best friend and his best friend's family. 
it really gives you two sort of juxtapositions of the types of families that live in the Gulf. And, you know, Zach's family very much sort of suited to the place. The other family is entirely normal, you know. It's, it's just the same sort of family you find anywhere because the Gulf is a place where people live. So even though it's freaking weird and mad shit goes on, it is also just a town where people live. So, yeah, I think it was it was a lot about just trying to show that that broad perspective of population. Yeah. It felt like, uh, for me, I, I, the best Stephen King reference, I know you guys said Castle Rock, but for me it was uh, more like Derry. I mean, I could see yeah. you having a thick tome of a book dedicated to that that town alone, man. Well, this is the thing. I've kind of, I see, I, I, I've always enjoyed short fiction. I've had a, I've had a lot of success, and I really with short fiction. I really enjoy writing it. I really enjoy reading it. <clears throat> um, and I particularly feel comfortable in that middle ground, in that sort of novella territory. Anything from sort of fifteen to forty thousand words, especially for horror, is such a good size to really sort of flesh out a story without it being as long as a novel. That you know, horror genre fiction, that sort of pulp horror, in the twenty to forty thousand word range is just so good. Um, and I do sort of have in mind at the moment that there's this collection of five and I can kind of see a second collection of either four or five stories, similar sort of length, that sort of 20,000 word novella length. Um, that would be the second volume sort of Tales from the Gulf 2, if that comes, with, you know, if that sort of does work out. But I do also have a couple of ideas in mind for longer stories set in the Gulf. Um, and I also have um, a novel that I'm working on at the moment that I've uh, it's sort of finished. <clears throat> it's a little bit broken. I kind of need to fix up some stuff about it. Um, but that's set not far from the Gulf, and that's a that's a full length novel. Uh, so while it's not in there, there is reference to it, and so you know it's not a tale. It's not one of the tales from the Gulf, but it's just set in the same kind of universe. It's the same similar kind of location. And I'm working on that at the yeah. moment and trying to get that polished up. And the stuff that goes on in there, it, it happens for similar reasons that the stuff happens in the Gulf. So, yeah, so there is, yeah, there's a scope for a lot more of it. So, yeah, I mean, when I can't remember, was it, I think it was Steve Spread in his review, he said <coughs> that uh, Alan Bax has found his Castle Rock, which is, which is such a cool uh, thing to say. But I do, yeah, for me as well, Derry is very much uh, sort of in mind when I'm writing about the Gulf. That was my first Stephen King was it. Um, that's how I discovered King back when I was like, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old or whatever it was. And so... Yeah, Derry is sort of embedded on my um, my subconscious. There. <laughs> yeah, there's a just to mention Steve Stred real quick. There's a guy that I think reads more than Brennan. I, I don't know many people that read more than him. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, he's he's a, he's a great guy. He writes well and he reads a lot and he's a top of you. He's a nice guy. He's a nice family man. Ooh. Doesn't seem like he sleeps. I don't know how he could, but now super nice guy. Yeah, yeah. It does make you wonder if some of these people do actually like exist on three hours sleep a night. How else do they do? <laughs> so, I mean, one of the things we definitely wanted to make sure we asked you, you, you just hit it, was can we expect some sort of volume two or at least a return trip in some way, shape, or form? And it almost seemed like a stupid question because, you know, any review I've seen has basically either asked or straight out said the same thing like look we're going back i don't care if baxter wants to or not we're going back um 
And what's what's so cool about this is that it's you know that there are certain characters that uh, or you know background characters even that are mentioned uh, more than once and never really brought into the fray. There are other doors that are left open. There are some doors that are closed but could definitely be reopened. There's just so much opportunity um, for you know that expansion. Um, hmm. Now I'm wondering when you're drafting these, when you, when you're going through the first iteration of all these different ones, how much of the connection stuff comes right away and how much is you going back once you've got the five and um, trying to make it read through as more of that mosaic novel form? Yeah. Yeah. How do the cogs go together? Um, well, I, I'm a firm believer in that um, that adage that the first draft is you telling yourself the story and the second draft is you making readers think they're clever. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is a bit like that. Uh, honestly, when I first started on it, I didn't realise how much of a mosaic novel it would actually become. When I first started on it, um, I knew that I wanted to write a bunch of stories all set in the same place. I'm really, I'm really big on on setting as character. That you know, the whole novel of Hidden City is basically about a sentient city who gets sick, and so everybody there gets sick, um, and this mad, weird cosmic shit goes on. Um, that was deliberately writing a, a, an entire novel where kind of the main character really is is the place, is the city. So I've always, I've always sort of really loved that, and I was that was kind of the vibe I was going for with the goal. That was going to be the center, and I was going to write all these different stories in it. Um, and I knew that I would have characters that would overlap. In the process of writing it, I realised um, how much they could overlap and how much there was a theme. Because something else, actually, that's kind of worth mentioning in a way, is often for me, themes tend to come through subconsciously. And I don't really recognise them until I'm redrafting. And then it's like, oh, wow, fuck me, that's what this is about. You know, like, it's, you know, I don't quite realise until my brain goes, we need to catch up. Um, and it's a bit like that with the gulp. When if when you look at it and you stop and you pull back and have a close look at it, you realise that every story in in some way is kind of about family in, in a way. There's everything's got that vibe of actual family or found family or desired family or whatever. Um, so that kind of that's that sort of thread sort of went through and went as a as I was redrafting, I really took very few little adjustments and nudges here and there to put to put the links in place um and i think probably that's because my subconscious was doing the work most of the time while i was writing the other stories by the time i got to writing rock fisher i knew how it was when i started writing it even when i was working on the other stories and i'd made some notes i knew how rock fisher was going to end um and i knew that it would go <laughs> that it would have sort of echoes back through the rest of the book and it, it would leave that opening for more stories because, you know, obviously the way that ends, there's clearly potentially more stuff that's going to go on there. But how completely that connected to other stories didn't really happen until I actually got to the end of writing. It was like, oh, that's the those guys are. So, yeah, that, that, that's kind of my, yeah, my subconscious at work more than anything else. I, I I can't say that I'm smart enough to have planned it that way, but yeah, some deep 
these big weird part of my brain seems to have been smart enough to like throw some seeds in there <laughs> and I just had to recognize them on subsequent drafts. Yeah, the more experience I get with this writing thing, the more I'm finding themes on the second draft rather than the first. And yeah. it's not that I would call a writer who, you know, purposely puts them in there on the first draft a liar, um, but I just can't even imagine how that works. <laughs> I've, I've long since, I haven't been doing this for a while now, I've long since come to the point where I just trust the story. I know that when... When I decide to actually go ahead and write something, it's like, okay, I'm going to write that one now. I know it's been boiling around for a while. So I don't, I don't try to think too hard about what it's about. I just try to, if, when it comes to novel length stuff, I can't, I can't start a novel with like a single idea. For me, novels tend to be several different ideas that have all been floating around and suddenly they sort of come together and I'm like, oh, those three things, if I put those together, that's a book. And I don't even really second guess why or how they're going to work together. I just kind of read that character, that place, that idea, that scene. Let's start. Okay, I'll start that book. And it, and it goes off. And with, with short stories or even with novellas, sometimes it can be a single idea or sometimes even a sort of single scene, like a vignette in my head. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to build the story around that. And, and I just trust in the story. I don't try to second guess what it might be about. If I stopped and thought about it, I might recognize the theme that was in there. But I just, I just, I don't bother anymore. I've just learned to trust the story. So I, I write the story that's in my head. I get that thing going and I write it down and I get to the end. And at, at the end, you're like, oh, yeah, I get it right. And then you can like highlight the right bits and delete the, you know, the bits you don't need after all and all that sort of stuff. I thought Brendan had a question. Um, Let's see. I was going to ask something that is a terrible segue from that. I don't know how to reply to all that besides that's good advice. I hope someone can apply that to their own writing. Um, yeah, it works. All writing advice is only as good as whether it's good enough for you. They're very much against writing rules, but there's a, there is a lot of good advice out there that you had. So. For sure. Now, <laughs> sorry if this is me putting you on the spot, but the band plays on. Uh, you have a character named Patrick. Was that based on me? <laughs> <laughs> now you know what this is interesting, okay? Because I noticed on on, <laughs> on I've got a I, don't get embarrassed now. I've clearly got a thing about Patrick. I um, yeah. <laughs> I saw I saw you mention on Twitter the other day. I, oh, there's a character named after me in it, and I was like, yeah, what character is named after you in the goal? And I had to stop and think for a while. I couldn't think which one it was. Um, in the room, there's Patrick McDonough. That guy is named after you in the same way that so many characters in the room are named after you guys. You know, yeah. Burns and Bearcat. So there's so many of the horror reading and writing and reviewing community. I just um, tucker eyes for the roof. You know, fuck all you guys making me write that book. <laughs> I killed you all in the book. Um, <laughs> the Patrick in The Gulp, um, he's, he's an Irish guy. So I guess in many ways it's really cliche that I, that I called him Patrick. But I've obviously got a bit of a thing for the name because I've just written a short story. Um, I, I don't think I can actually talk about what it's what it's for at, at the moment. But I don't think it's public yet. I was commissioned basically. I was commissioned for a short story, which I've just finished writing, and I decided to write it um, another story about a character that I'd previously written about um, that I'd previously written a short story about, um, and so. I had this in mind, I made some notes, and I was like, right, I need to go back and find out what that character was called from back from that short story. And the guy's called fucking Patrick. So I can never write a character called Patrick again. 
<laughs> because <laughs> there's the there's the guy from the Gulf, there's the, the Patrick Madonna in, in the roof. Um, and now there's this recurring character in my short fiction whose name is Patrick. So I will never, I can never do any more Patrick. <laughs> I've used that name enough. Um, so, so yes, no, sorry. The, the, this one not named after you, but um, just just me being very lazy with names for Irish people. Patrick and Kira, those two of course. <laughs> All good, man. I just had to ask uh, the band in that one, Blind Eye Moon. They yeah. sound incredible. I want to listen to them. Are they based on any? They based on any band that did any band in particular influence the uh, vocabulary or maybe the imagery that you had for that band? Um, every band I love is basically distilled into <clears throat> into Blind Eye Moon. Um, I, I'm a real rock and metal fan. Um, I'm just a really big thrash metal fan. Um, and I love the old original rock and roll and the old original heavy metal. Um, and so I... It, when it comes down to it, you think about all the classics, like, the, you know, the Led Zeppelin and the Motorhead and the Iron Maiden and all those sorts of people, and you put it with the, the, the classic crashes, like Metallica and Slayer and whatever else. And you imagine all those different bands that go, right, imagine imagine that kind of vibe, like, distilled into just one modern band that also had that kind of, that uh, sort of weird cosmic Hawkwind sort of thing about it that it might do. And so... Um, so it's just kind of it, Blind Eye Moon in, in the Gulf is, is basically just kind of my dream band. I, I used to play in a band. The one thing I, I don't do anymore that I miss the most um, is playing the band, just because there's not time for it. I run a Kung Fu school. I've got family. I, I write um, close to full time. And I just don't have the time to rehearse and gig and stuff. And I really miss it. Um, and so writing that story was in some ways sort of cathartic. In some ways, it was like this would be this is the sort of this is the ultimate band this is what i would always have wanted my band to be like that kind of um you know that everybody just goes oh this band is fantastic they're the best band you've ever heard and people go oh you know how can i do that big they they're like oh my band, this band is brilliant that kind of thing that's what's what we always want that's what gets us in right in the soul when we find a band that makes us go oh, holy shit and you just want to be in, you want to experience that band you want to be at their gigs it's like that that's that's what they are, and so it's like yeah. In, if the, if the if the golf if golf pepper itself is a gestalt town based on all the sort of weird harbour towns around the New South Wales south coast, then Blind Eye Moon are like a gestalt band of all the best rock and metal bands that uh, that, have, that that have kind of hit my soul over the years. That's people the, people have been asking me for Blind Eye Moon merch, which is awesome. <laughs> that's that's so cool. Uh, people want patches and t-shirts for Blind Eye Moon. It would be awesome to start doing that stuff. I can't afford. I can't afford to commission artists to do it, but uh, yeah, at some point maybe that'd be cool to start offering merch from the Gulf. <laughs> that'd be fantastic. I mean, I'm a drummer man, and I sold my set uh, that I had a Pearl Export. I'm 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 a big that's I'm a brand drummer, so I like Pearl drums, and uh, I sold it before yeah, I. I'm all about I'm all about the Fender look right there. See? What do you have? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fantastic. I. Uh, <laughs> I hear you because like all the free time I got, I'm like you. If it's not with my family, I want to write or read or work on my podcast and I miss playing the drums so bad. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe you don't play bass, do you, Brennan? Because uh, that's a band right <laughs> You do? <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, we have a band. <laughs> Although I can't sing for shit, so we need a singer. <laughs> hmm. I hear Josh Mallerman's a singer. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I think he's kind of busy with his own band. But 
Yeah. 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 True. Uh, Brennan, uh, why don't you, why don't you jump in, man? Actually, I kind of want to follow that question up. I, I had a, I had a similar question. I was, you know, cause, cause like Patrick said, the descriptions of like the individual portions of the songs were, um, here's the musician and me coming out again. Um, I thought they were really, really well done and very detailed. So let's say that you have to build your own like ultimate blind eye moon. You can put two guitars, a bassist, a drummer, and a vocalist in there from like your 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 favorite bands. Who are you choosing to front your band from hell? Oh shit! Far um, <laughs> out. I would have trouble choosing this. Partly because uh, I'm really bad at knowing. Um, mus- musicians' names, band members' names, I'm really bad at, and I'm really bad at remembering like song titles. You know that song? I don't remember. I know the song real well. I just don't know what it's called. Um, far out, man. That's that's a really tough question to answer. I don't uh, know. I, I'd have, I would have to think about that for for some time. I think maybe the drummer from Fear Factory. When it comes to drumming, uh, bass players, man. I don't know. You know Guy Pratt, who uh, he, he plays bass now live for Pink Floyd when they tour? He's an astounding bass player, probably. Uh, maybe, maybe, so, yeah. Yeah, maybe him. <laughs> I thought I don't, sure there are too many with all the, I don't want to single out people because there are so many, so many people who are so damn good. Yeah. No, it's a really mean question because I couldn't do it. Yeah, I, I can't. It's like when people say, "What's your favorite? Which is your favorite book?" Or you know, what, "What's your favorite? What's your favorite film?" It's like, "Holy shit, man!" Ask me on any different day, and I'll give you a different answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, if, is there one singer or two? Well, see, uh, do you guys know a band called Scar Symmetry? Uh, if you don't, check them out. They are fucking brilliant. Um, what, what is it again? Scar Symmetry. They're called. They're, Scar. Um, Scar? Scar, yeah, like as in a wound that heals. Scar symmetry. Gotcha. Um, there was they have a a real metal sound, and they had a real death vocalist and a clean vocalist, um, and it was really cool. And then, um, what what I should say is they had one guy who would do death and clean, and then when he left the band, they had to replace him with two different vocalists: one to do the death and one to do the clean, because wow. he his range was so good that they replaced one with um, so, so that that yeah, that would be an interesting thing. But also, I I really like a strong, powerful female vocal um, with heavy music. That really works for me. The thing you know, bands like Nightwish or Hammerbox or stuff like that. Um, I really yeah. like that vibe. And so, you know, it quite often works when when there's both like, like male and female vocals um, with with heavy music. That really works for me. Nightwish and Within Temptation are two excellent bands, man. Yeah, man. For me, I'm just gonna throw three. Two two singers and a bassist. Uh, Robert Plant with Ozzy Osbourne and for the bass, Flea. That's all I got. <laughs> I, I thought of Flea and I thought of Les Claypool as well for bass playing because those guys are just outstanding. But, you know, you, you then you start thinking, well, but would they work together or would that vibe be or what? And then, yeah. yeah. No idea. That's a yeah. weird so combination. <laughs> the ideal lineup for Blind Eye Moon would be the guys in Blind Eye Moon. And you Perfect. Just have to, you just have to imagine how good they are. <laughs> <laughs> now brennan you want to dive into any more stories before we move on uh no if you got something in mind go for it so i did see recently that you um you were uh talking about brian Keane's end of the road we just had him last week so i'd yeah. like to pick your brain about that uh over over the mic as opposed to just seeing it on text um 
Mm. What, what was your experience with it, man? I, I, I literally just finished reading it last night. Um, it, it's a really good book. It's like, you know, Brian's the kind of guy who's just been deep in this theme for for so long. He's sort of seen so much and knows so much. And also um, being as much in the American scene as he is, which is where so many, like we talked about before, you know, the fact that American sort of culture is so pervasive. Uh, if you take the horror scene here in Australia, it's it's just the same. It's really tight. It's really close. People know each other. We hang out. We, you know, I miss the fuck out of my friends at the moment because there's no conventions and stuff, no con bars to hang out in and drink or whatever. But it's like 1% of what there is over there. You, you, you know, you read a book like End of the Road and you, you're reminded of all the conventions, all the different in, amazing indie bookstores that there are out there and signing opportunities and all the different things people can do. Um, it, it just really sort of drove home to me how much this industry is built by passion. Uh, on the one hand, our passion to create the stuff <clears throat> that we feel compelled to, to make and to create, but then also the, the drive to get out there, the drive to get out there and mix with other people like ourselves at the conventions and to meet fans at conventions and to meet fans at signing and to support each other and the way that readers will and reviewers will back up what we do and want to share that and everything. And Brian's book was a really good reminder of how interconnected all that stuff is um, and how fucking soulless and mechanical the like the big publishing machine is compared to that real blood and guts of what makes an actual sort of community, especially like a fan community, you know, where with something like horror or science fiction or fantasy and even in romance too, even though romance is huge, they in this country, I'm sure it's the same over there they still have that same thing, that sort of passionate, engaged community. Um, and it seems to me that publishing, which is supposed to be the engine of all of this, um, is moving further and further away from recognising that that is the blood and guts of what we do. And so it, it was really interesting reading Brian's book to be to be reminded of that. And it, it yeah, really, really sort of brought home to me how much that we all need each other and rely on each other and how much we motivate each other you know i i whenever i go to a convention whenever i do a, a like a supernova or a, a complex convention or a fan convention and do signing or whatever else i come back from there with such a drive to write more such a passion to do more of it when you get out there and you see the impact that it has it's easy i mean i spend most of my time sitting here making shit up you know so you know i enjoy that i love that sort of solitude of creation and whatever else but when you when you go out there and you get that feedback and you see the sort of impact that it has, it's just so incredibly motivating. Um, and yeah, it made me realize just how important that is. And it also made me realize how much I can miss it. Like I haven't, I, I, I was at Super, so there's like, you know, it's, it's sort of a Comic Con, it's a bit like San Diego Comic Con, but Australia size, you get, you know, there's still several thousand people come through every weekend, uh, but it's called Supernova. And so there's all the, you know, voiceover, movie stars, TV stars, whatever else, all the sort of stuff that gets there. And there's an orchestra. So they tend to have one big international name and then a bunch of us Australian authors and we all get to go and sign books and meet fans and stuff like that. And I was at Supernova at the Gold Coast right when the pandemic first kicked in to the point where the government started talking about restricting numbers of gatherings. Uh, and on the Saturday, we didn't know if the Sunday was going to go ahead yet. And then the government announced that as from midnight Sunday, restrictions were going to be were coming in no more than 500 people. Um, you know, and Supernova would probably have 10, 15,000 people through the course of the day. 
Uh, so they were celebrating, yeah, we get to do Sunday and then everything shuts down. So I was literally at a con right at the point when everything shut down and it still hasn't opened up again yet. And that was last March. Um, so normally I tend to do, you know, a few different conventions, small fan con, bigger, bigger sort of comic con, whatever comes up. Uh, I've done a couple of library workshops with sort of socially distanced people just at the start of this year. I just did one last weekend. And it, that's the first time I've been back out among things again. And then, you know, really small controlled workshops. I really miss that convention vibe where you get to hang out and chat and meet fans and meet meet your, meet your peers and meet the people you look up to and talk about all these things and then just get to hang out in the bar and drink whiskey and talk this stuff. And, yeah, I, I miss the hell out of it. And it, I realised that the supernova in March was the last time it happened and we don't know when it's going to start again. So. Yeah, so I really enjoyed Brian's book, but it also kind of made me sad and blood nostalgic for that stuff. Last year was going to be my first time, man, going to cons. I was really looking towards it. Scares it. I signed up to go to StokerCon in the UK. Like, we, we were supposed to be in the UK for the whole month of April. And the reason we were going then was because StokerCon was there. I'd been to StokerCon the year before in, uh, in Providence, which is just fucking brilliant that was the first time i'd been to an american convention i finally got over there to one of the one of your guys and it was just awesome got to meet all these guys that i knew really well online and everyone was so nice and friendly and everything and then who knows when it'll happen again uh, yeah, yeah that's, it will happen, it will happen but, event, yeah. eventually i was uh i was really pumped i was the first thing i was going to go to was a when Brian's uh, podcast was on, the horror show with Brian King, you all should check it out ASAP uh, after listening to this episode. But they were going to assign in Brian, Mary, uh, and uh, Matt, and a few others. And um, it's like an hour and a half from where I live, man. I was going to go there. It's going to go with my family. It was at some uh, some type of market where we could just shop around and have a good Sunday, I think it was, together. Yeah. Got canceled, and I was supposed to meet a bunch of Jer- New Jersey writers and uh, go to Scares of Care, and then me and Brandon were supposed to meet up in October in Massachusetts for Christopher Golden's uh, Merrimack. Merrimack, yeah. I was really looking towards all of that, man. So, uh, and and the weird thing is, is when I first started thinking about going to cons. The beginning of when I became a reviewer in 2019, I was nervous because I was like, I don't really, I don't know if I'll fit in. And now whenever I go, I mean, like, I'll probably know most people. So it's very, it only happened in the course of two years. It's very strange. It's felt like you know it's. What? Sorry, I was going to say when, when it comes to conventions, because this is what happened to me. So this is what I always try to do to other people. And I see it happen frequently. There, there is the advantage with social media and stuff that we do tend to all know each other already. We're like, hey, we've chatted but never met before. But even for the people that haven't, whenever I'm at a convention, especially in the con bar between panels or in the evening, and I notice loads of other people do it as well, I've always kind of got one eye glancing around and just to see and if there's anyone just kind of standing, looking, or someone who looks a bit nervous, you just go, hey, come and sit down. And you just invite people in and bring them to chat. Um, because when I was the same, when I went to my first convention, um, which was, I don't know, like 2006 or seven or something like that. Um, I had no idea what was going on. Um, and Jack Dan, who's an absolute legend of science fiction, he's been around like forever. He's an American, lives here now and lives outside Melbourne. Um, he ended up in the hotel room next to me 
and we both sort of went out onto the balcony at the same time. And he was like, oh, hey, how are you going? You're here for the con? He's like, oh, my God. yeah, hi, how are you? And so he just chatted to me right away. And then when I went downstairs, somebody else was like, hey, how are you going? And people just automatically just bring you in. And if you turn out to be a dick and you act like an idiot, they, they're very good at just like, oh, well, okay, we won't talk to you anymore. But most people are not. Most people are nice and they're just nervous and they want to get in. And so my experience at conventions was very much people being really warm and friendly and welcoming. And I make a point of trying to do the same thing now. And just I see people standing around. So, you know, I might never have seen your face or know who you were, but if I see a nervous person in the car, I always, hey, do you want to come and sit down? Come and have a drink. Because that's all it takes. That one person, you talk to a couple of people and all of a sudden you relax a little bit and you feel like you're someone you can say hello to and, and, and you're in. That's what it is. That's the beauty of it. That's great. Um, before we move on to anything else, we're almost at the hour mark. Was wondering if we could get the cover artist for the gulping soon to have a chat oh, with the two yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. Hey, here she is. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Hi. I'm Pat. Hi. This is Brennan. Hello. Brennan, Pat, it's Flinka. Hi. Nice, nice to meet you. I got to tell you, your cover. The cover that you did, and I saw the other designs too. They're gorgeous. Thank you. They're original. And, um, Go ahead. I was going to say I should say because when yeah when we talked before we mentioned that I ran a couple of things by you before I was like am I mad to write this book? Uh, and that was one of the things I ran by was like three or four different potential like draft covers um, using three or four different of Halinka's paintings and and that particular one you and a couple of other people were all very much like yeah that that one looks good so. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't easy. They're all awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, thanks, guys. I just, I just, I wanted to talk to you because it's a, it's a great piece. I was just curious to learn a little bit about you as much as you want to share. Oh, um, okay. Well, I've been a painter for a painter for a while. Um, and <laughs> like 25 years, yeah. So, so, yeah, and I've been um painting nighttime themes for yeah, a, a really long time. I started, I went to university and studied painting, and that's when I started, you know, taking photos at night and painting from them really realistically and really interested in the feeling that you get when you're out on your own at night and you know, what is really average during the day kind of creeps in on you a little bit and you start imagining things in the shadows and, you know, that contrast between um, light and dark areas and how, you know, often our public spaces are really, um, you know, strongly lit in some places and then that means that there are really dark shadows in other places. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very primal human thing to wonder about the darkness and to kind of imagine things there and um, even us brave grown-ups you know um, can against our own better judgment kind of scurry away and (laughs) try and get home (laughs) and I think I think this particular image is a really good one for the gulf because it is of our local town and um, you know, I know that um, Kayama and the geography of Kayama really sort of formed the geography of this imagined place that Alan wrote about. So the image um, is of the cliffside and a, near a pool. There's like a big, big sea pool that sort of the, the water washes in from the sea. Um, 
and you know I really liked the the kind of contrast if you look very closely there's like a little house um in amongst the the vegetation at the top of the cliff and then there's the big pine tree oh okay you might not be able to see it very clearly but yeah at the at the top of the cliff so it's you know I guess it gives you that sense of uh humanity being um at the mercy of the elements and nature and you know this big drop off um yeah and just talking about that, the Kayama Sea Pool, the location for that painting, we were talking about subsequent stories potentially in the Gulf. There's a brief mention in the Gulf of, of the Ocean Pool, but um, the Gold Pepper Ocean Pool will be making a more central appearance if I do get to write the next set of stories in mind. So in some ways that cover is um, yeah, like a, a herald of things to come. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did not know that. Wow. Mm. Brandon. Yeah, yeah, exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything else you'd like to know? Because, you know, I can talk about my work. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to hear about uh, your work. Sounds okay. to me like you guys are absolutely two sides of the same coin. Your <laughs> what the, the inspiration that goes into your painting sounds like the inspiration that goes into this guy's work. <laughs> Dark. Yeah, definitely, definitely. However, I would say that um, Alan has a much, much stronger sort of, um, you know, he expresses it in a much more macabre way. <laughs> like he gets right in there and, and really puts it in your face, whereas, you know, I'm more interested in the atmospheric, you know, like um, I'm really interested in, yeah, that transformation of the everyday and what you could describe as being uncanny. So, um, you know, uncanny being when it feels like there's a presence um, in, in an everyday space. So it becomes transformed. And uh, to get a little bit sort of um, academic about it, I suppose Freud wrote about the uncanny um, and described it as being a reflection of the self. So it's when... Uh, parts of the, the the mind that are kind of suppressed or hidden um, become reflected in the outside world. So, you know, and, and again, like this relates to, you know, tales of haunting and horror because so often, you know, you see that story played out in horror films and stories that, especially the haunted house, you know, that the house made uncanny where there's, you know, a process of discovery that the the protagonist kind of goes through and then the haunting is kind of resolved. So I think that's a thing that, um, you know, we, we ha- recurs again and again. I think, I think that's a good point. I think, yeah, uncanny is often the starting point of horror. So Halinka's work explores the uncanny and, like I said, I tend to go further to with Given that I write horror, I take that uncanny point and keep going. Whereas Halinka shows you the uncanny case, you decide. Yeah. So it's yeah. So yeah, I think I think it's a, I think it's a good point. The, uh, the the basis of a lot of horror is the uncanny. That first moment of unease or discomfort, um, where a lot of the time you go, oh, "That was a bit weird." I'm going. Mm, something's and wrong. Happens, but yeah. Yeah. Mm. Other times, if you're writing horror, well, that's the beginning because something is wrong and you can't get out of it. And oh no, this is all mm. going down. Mm. So, yeah, so one sort of leads mm. to the other. I yeah, think. and I guess there's something very different about the the crafts that we, we use to express these things. You know, you are a storyteller, so you 
flesh out the story, whereas mm. I have one single image and it's really up to the the viewer to interpret that. So it it is a, not a blank canvas. Obviously, there's a lot of suggestion in there, but really it's what the viewer brings to it. Like people's responses are vastly different. Some people will say, I love this image. It makes me feel comfortable. Like I look at that house in the darkness and I think it's a safe haven. And then someone else will say, oh, my gosh, that's like the creepiest house in the world. Zero What's going on in there? Yeah. yeah, I would never <laughs> walk down that street. <laughs> so I guess, um, you know, I would kind of describe the storytelling in the paintings as being like a still and there's a sense that, you know, there's a story before and a, and a story after this um, moment of time, yeah. That's awesome. Brennan, you got a follow up to that, sir? I love the duality of it. You know, I when I look at the cover and I see the bottom part that's very lit up with the fence, you know, you, you could certainly look at that and see it as a safe haven, as a place where um, you can see everything that's going on and you can feel okay about it. But, um, you know, as somebody who's drawn to the darker side of things, as a horror writer, I'm looking at what's kind of surrounding that and thinking that if I'm in that place, yeah, okay, it's lit up, but I can't see anything else that's surrounding me and I know it's bad stuff. Well, I'm just or at least I'm jumping to that conclusion. <laughs> yeah, well that's the thing about when there's a when there's a really strong point of light, you know that at some point you're gonna have to move away from the light. And there might just be another lamppost down the street and you can just walk under lamppost mm. all the way, or there might not be. You might be leaving the light and going into the dark. But mm. the, the beauty of that snapshot image is that's what you don't know. And I guess that's what we do when we write. Is that's what we explore, that journey. But I think I would add to that and say that there is also another side to darkness and an exploration of the darkness is that I think if you kind of push through that automatic response there can be really profound peacefulness um, in night and that it can be very quiet and it does you know having that lack of everyday information outside of you in the darkness is naturally sort of scary at first but when you do begin to relax I think it kind of draws you more inside yourself and it can make you sort of feel closer to some sort of, um, yeah, just closer to yourself in some way. Um, but some of the noise and distraction of every day is taken away. And I guess there's something to be said that, you know, if you are in the darkness, you might not be able to see scary things out there, but you also can't be seen. So so it's a very um, personal experience. Maybe you're the scary thing in the dark. Well... <laughs> Yeah, I am always really kind of, when people say to me, like one person said about one scene, I feel really, really comfortable here. I did look at them and go, Why? is that because you're like the scary presence? <laughs> Um, it, it, it's interesting with this with the cover with the this is an illustration right you i think you painted it didn't you yes um right. nice okay yeah it looked like it um so i looked at it and all the other ones that corresponded with the i guess series or whatever the proper term is for that and i was intrigued i was like all right well it seems like a, you know, a sea town, like he's talking about. But then I read the stories and I'm like, all right, I know better. Now 
I'm more creeped out. So it's really cool. I love how I love when couples work together or married couples or what have you work together and make something awesome. And I feel like that's what you guys did. Well, hopefully, because a lot of the time we, in publishing, we don't get a choice. A lot of the time, we, you know, we cover the publishers decide on the cover and you get some input, especially with small press, you get some input. Um, and given that I've been putting some things out, self-publishing here and there now as well, um, this being one of them, I guess now if I do continue to produce work about the Gulf, I will probably just continue to self-publish it because it seems to be going okay for this. So, you know, with any luck, maybe the, the, the Gulf can be the start of a series in terms of writing and each of the books hopefully will feature into art on the cover. So if she'll if she'll let me use more painting, then uh, we can potentially see a thematic thing going on with the with the location and the cover art. So depends on how often you do this issue. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> this is how this is how I pay for cover art as a as a strug, as a struggling writer. No, no, that 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 would be fun. I'd be very happy for that. Yeah, it is yeah. nice. It is you know our work doesn't often <clears throat> kind of uh, cross over. No, this is one of the this is one of the places where our <clears throat> where our work has. Um, Come much closer than it often mm. than it often mm. would do. Like, yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. It, it is. It's a it's a really nice kind of coincidence because yeah. we have talked about the similarities and themes of, of what we do. Mm. A lot um, of people do sort of yeah. bring it up. Yeah, that mm. we, that we explore similar territory. So, yeah. so where does your art usually take you? Uh, in terms of uh, uh, like showing the work, or. So- Sorry, I should be way more. That's so vague. Okay. He, Alan said that your work, it, this is the closest it's been where they interweave with each other. So I was oh, okay. cu- yeah, I was just curious, like where, I guess, both in content and um, where you usually typically show, which Alan, or, and it's Halenka, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Making sure I was saying that correctly. Um, I would like to get a link to, if you have a store or anything for the end of the show, to, yeah, sure. But I was curious, where um, do you, before the pandemic, did you usually go to shows? Is there like a, a, a artist community in Australia or globally that you're a part of? Like, where do you typically, um, for your content, what is it normally? And uh, where do you usually go to talk about your art? Yeah, cool. That's, that's really clear. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so... Initially, my work, the content of the work was much more, you know, um, suburban streets and houses and parks, those kind of spaces that we were talking about, like on the cover of the Gulf where you've got, you know, really obvious um, street lighting or light coming out of a house or something like that. Um, And those more sort of public settings, little in between spaces, you know, between houses or up the back of the, the yard or, or anything like that. Um, in yeah, parts. yeah. <laughs> These days the content has moved a little bit away from that in that I'm more interested in kind of the relationship between the human world and the natural world and um, you know structures that we create that mess with that a little bit. Like I've recently painted a huge dam like this really old kind of creepy dam and there's still that psychological element of the uncanny and all of all of what we discussed but there's also I guess another a new layer which is kind of trying to pull apart the 
entanglement of the human and the natural world um, and, you know, things that we might take for granted, um, just making us see them from a slightly different angle. So uh, that means I've been dragging Alan and our son out, like, on bushwalks at night time to go and visit old dams. And <laughs> the last time we were about four hours west of the coast inland in this, mm. the middle of fucking nowhere, yeah. just yeah. walking and, in the bush oh, at night to take photos. We, because um, basically I did a residency, um, yeah, out west away and um, I went and photographed a uh, a ghost town. Essentially there's this really cool, the ruins of a a shale oil mining town that is in the middle of nowhere and housed like several hundred people. You know, they had like a tennis club. They had all sorts, like shops, all sorts of things going on. And then when the shale ran out, they just cleared out and moved on. And you've got all these ruins and remnants of both like the industrial complex that they built to process the shale and with houses and like, like an old car here and there. And just, um, just to talk about how our work crosses over as well, because she went out there, needed what she wanted to take, she found this location, wanted to take photos and stuff like that. I was talking to you before about uh, more stories set in and around the Gulf and the no- more novel length stuff. One one of those will will be featuring that um, or a version of that ghost town. So yeah, that's uh, so. I think finding locations for a painting gives me food for thought, and I'm like, I'm going to use that. So yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of crossover. So this, this place was yeah. this place was amazing. It, it was, was. Just, it was a it was a huge entire populated working town like a hundred years mm. ago. And now it's just all fallen down buildings. It's all just bush. Half the time you can't even mm. pick out where the buildings were. Mm. And then you find these huge brick kilns and stuff that are yeah. still there. It's a fascinating yeah. place. Yeah. So being in those kind of spaces means that I need to take my own lights, and um, which is really cool because you get to kind of orchestrate the the composition much more. Like you can really change the way something looks by moving the light around. Um, and get some really awesome shadows and really dark spaces and really lit spaces just how you want them. Uh, and so, yeah, so I basically I I am represented by a gallery in Sydney um, and I suppose I see myself as being part of the Sydney art scene in essence. But in recent years I've been doing a lot more outside of that commercial gallery setting and, um, you know, being having shows in regional art galleries, being involved in um, this work that we're talking about with the ghost, ghost town is going to eventually end up in a, um, a arts festival. So there's a biannual, every two years they do this amazing arts festival where artists come and take over a small um, town out west about three, four hours west of Sydney. So, um, you know, it's quite unusual to have lots of art in a space like that. Um, So it's quite extraordinary. Um, And I am currently in the process of curating an exhibition. So um, that's something I'm only doing for the second time. uh, And it's been a really, really exciting learning experience alan hears all about it all the time <laughs> he says exciting it sounds horrifying and nerve-wracking a lot of the time but it is exciting too it, it is it's all of those things look when you when you're scared you know you're challenging yourself and yeah. there's there's a healthy dose of fear 
but um, only because it feels like such an enormous privilege to, um, you know, kind of... Well, it's a responsibility. It's too. a responsibility yeah. and um, and to work with other artists that you really love and, you know, for, for a venue that you really admire. Um, and it's very cool because the show is going to be in a uh, heritage-listed police cell, so in Newcastle, um, it's this really well-preserved uh, environment, you know, with peeling paint and graffiti by prisoners and all sorts of things. So fingernail scratching. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, that's the asylum, not sorry. Yeah, well, actually, one of the cells is a padded cell, a horsehair and leather padded cell. It's tiny, mm-hmm. and uh, so you have to be very careful about how you install work there. You have to be careful which artist you put in there. That's right. That's right. So, so that's a really nice dark kind of crossover. Um, you know, the the venue itself has this very kind of atmospheric feeling. So, yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I've got like some, yeah, some. Great projects in the pipeline. Things are good. Yeah. That's incredible. Brandon, I got a few things to say. Do you have anything? I don't want to cut you off, buddy. You got anything to say? No, I just worry that with such creative parents, Abine is going to be like an accountant or something. <laughs> oh, we're, we're, we're fully expecting him to just be, uh, yeah, a, a conservative accountant or something like that. But having said that, he is very good with his arts and crafts, and he's also very good with his English and math. And, and he's stuff. trying to post something under the door and right now. He's posting his <laughs> iPad under the no, door with a long note written on he's it. Been, so. He's been writing... Some kind of wacky poetry. Uh, there, there you go. We're using predictive text. Read it. Would you like to hear it? I don't know that we have a choice, but yes. Read it, read it. Be warned, there are several. Okay, um, I'm not going to read. No, no, there's a short oh, one. You can't really, I, I'm, just, I'm just going to read some of it, all right? You know I was your man in a while ago, but the fact I don't have the I have a great day for the next few day of the day, I will be a good day and a good day for me and a good day for me and a good day for me and a good day for me. It's a little bit Jack Torrance. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Anyway. Let, let's not yeah. let's not go too far. But yes, predictive text poetry on the iPad is something that's mm. um, he's laughing now, he's very happy. I have to admit, it was pretty funny the other one. He he made some uh, some small adjustments uh, being a boy. Uh, was it about poo? Yeah. The fact I can get it right away with my family is so cute when you get no, a no, new phone case. Not that Do the second. Do the second. From the end? From the top. Do the second one from the top. Okay. All right. To be a good day for me, 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 to be a good day for the butt and poo. <laughs> He's laughing out there, even if you're. I will never understand how your poo works. Right now, I'm selling historical oils, and poo people are coming and complaining about the historical oils. And I also sell butts for people who don't have a butt. <laughs> to be a good day for me, 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 to be just like your grandma. <laughs> He's a better writer than me, man. No, I would tell you that. I would tell you that my eight and ten year old boys would love that, but I'm dying here. I love it. <laughs> no, I, I think that's. I think. I think we'll stop there. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's talking to us through the door. <laughs> 
not no, how I, 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 think, I think that's enough. We're going to run out of time. Okay. We're going to run out of time, darling. Sorry about that. There you go. So, <laughs> some, some exclusive A being predicted. Yeah. Mm. Mm. No, no oh. apology necessary. You guys want to talk about butts? <laughs> yeah, <Anytime. laughs> yeah, there's something you actually never grow out of, really, is it? No. <laughs> I, admit, I also don't really understand food. <laughs> Who does, really? <laughs> I work. I work at a poop factory, and I don't understand it. <laughs> really? A waste. Yeah, a wastewater treatment plant. I got a question for you two, though. How yeah. long have you guys been married? Because you're best friends, and I love listening to you guys talk. Wow, man, we have been we well. We just we just had our twenty second wedding anniversary. He's the numbers guy. <laughs> yeah, I had to stop and think about it though. Yeah, yeah. so we, we were together a couple of years before that, uh, but we twenty uh, second wedding anniversary was the end of last year. You guys are so supportive of each other, and it makes oh, me happy. And it makes we're me happy. We're as stubborn and mad as each other. That's it. Yeah. It, it makes me happy for your kid because you know that that kid's loved to death and he's going to have every option available and that's going to be another good person from the next time. That butt poetry. Thank you so much, There's no time, darling. Sorry. He's yelling at us to please do another one. That's that's lo- that's really lovely. I, I appreciate that, yeah. Yeah. No, I love happy people. I mean, sad people are – I'm a sad person too at times, so they're fine too, but I like happy couples. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On that note, I think unless there's anything else pressing that you wanted me to answer, I'd better go because he's, he's like scratching We, have, we appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Oh, so nice to meet you guys. You Thank too. You I too. See ya. Bye. Oh, dear. Ellen, I'm dying. That was gold. <laughs> I did not think we were going to have an exclusive of AB, too. Yeah, there you go. That's, uh, that's a, there's all kinds of firsts on that front. There you go. So <laughs> I got I Ken McKinley, close friend of ours. Uh, founder of uh, Silver Shamrock. Uh, I think oh, yeah. he'd get a kick out of this. He rejected <laughs> for Midnight in the Pentagram. I'll just say it. Uh, I submitted a poop story to him. So I feel like if he <laughs> listens to this, he's going to be busting my balls at some point. <laughs> that that <laughs> little kid can write better than you, Pat. <laughs> yeah, there's something to aspire to right there. But, you know, he did also have, he did also have a little predictive text um, assistant there. So, you know, it's about, it's about that curation of work, you know, it's like mold, molding what he was given into something greater. That's awesome. Uh, I, that, thank you so much for having your wife on too, man. Like she's lovely. Oh, thank you for talking to her. Cause that's great. I mean, she is, and she was an integral part of the production of this book. And I'm really glad that, I mean, once before, pardon me, once before a friend of ours got to use some of her artwork on the cover of his book. Um, but I, I never had before. And it's like, you know, we've had these side-by-side professional sort of careers for so long, but they've, they've never actually lined up like this. And so as soon as going back to what I said about the gulp, you know, it became the, the sort of pandemic project. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it myself. I'm not going to worry about anything else. I was like, oh, I get to use things up. And so I was immediately like, can I please, is there anything? And she's like, that, whatever you like, no worries. So I just went right through her back catalogue and I was just pulling out all these different things and it's particularly a couple that are, actually from our local harbour town as well obviously which particularly relevant so yeah i got super excited i got finally got to use her, her work on a couple of the books so. i really hope that you do write that ghost story uh whatever it's going to turn into and use her art again for that man because that yeah. 
You already sold me, and I'm sure that there's listeners that are like, well, I know Baxter's a good, a great writer, so I'm going to I want that too. Yeah, well, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think pretty much anything that uh, I do write that's sort of gulp or gulp adjacent, if uh, I end up putting it out myself, I think I'll probably make a point of using one of Linker's paintings for it. So, yeah. It did lead me to a question that I didn't ask last time because I didn't, fr- quite frankly, I didn't think about it. Um, so it's a self-published book. Your logo right there is. Uh, uh-huh. Is there any interesting story about why you chose a yeah a, a dragon? Yeah, there is to a degree. <clears throat> okay, you've asked a bigger question <laughs> than you realize there. So let, let's go back a bit. Um, at the beginning of my career, I when I first published. Um, my first novel. So, so for the people who who don't know, the general sort of shape of publishing is you write. This is incredibly abridged, but you write a book, you get an agent, your agent gets it to publishers, editors in publishers go, yeah, we really like this. The editor takes it to acquisitions, um, and all the bean counters and the marketers and everybody else are at the acquisitions meeting, and they go yes or no. Um, when I wrote my first book, it got to acquisitions twice. And both times they were like, yeah, it's great, but no. Um, and this was right about the same time, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of, of the, that sort of first resurgence of self-publishing when print-on-demand and e-books and everything were just first becoming um, sort of hot coffee again. And so I thought that sounded quite interesting. So I was like, you, you know what, fuck it, I might just put it out myself. I know it's a good book. It's got the acquisition twice. I just can't get it over the line. I don't want to keep focusing on this book. I want to write the next one. Um, so I was like, I'm just going to, see how the self-publishing thing goes. I'm going to put it out myself and I'm going to write the next book and see how that goes. So that's what I did, um, self-published the first one. <clears throat> and then it, it did okay. It did quite well. You know, it was, a, it was a bit of a sort of kickstart to what I was doing. So when I came to put out the next one, because my first two books are a duology, Realmshift and Maidstein are, are a duology, um, I decided what I would actually do is set up sort of a, a, a mini imprint um, and uh, I would use that to put out a re. Uh, I would reissue the first book, matching alongside with a new book, and maybe I would put out a couple of other things as well as, as a bit of a small press. So when I did that, I set that up, um, and I called the, the the press was called Blade Red Press. It was this little publishing house that I came up with, and I put out an anthology and a couple of other people's things over the course of time. Um, and at the, but at the time, I realised that. I actually don't want to be a publisher or a self-publisher. It was an interesting experiment. It was fun. I enjoyed it, but it took a shitload of time and effort. And it's like, I, I want to write. I want to be a writer. I'll, I'd rather work with publishers. I'll go back to looking for publishers. And subsequently, you know, I sold a trilogy to HarperCollins and I've had great um, great luck with, you know, all sorts of published, PS Publishing and Grey Matter Press and all these people who've done wonderful things for me. Um, but at the time when I set up Blade Red Press, I just, because it was just going to be sort of a, sort of horror, dark fiction, fantasy kind of imprint. I just got someone to design this Dragon's Head logo and it said Blade Red and Press underneath. So that one that you just showed, that that, that was, so that that sort of stylized Dragon Head had writing above and below it that said Blade Red Press. When I, and that was the, that was the logo that we used for a while there. And then that, that whole, the press got wound up and everything sort of went away. When I decided I would do some self-publishing again, if you see, there's there's, there's the Rue, um, and I I don't you see it there, but there, I used that again, and it was that was mainly because I was when I 
I, even self-publishing, for me, a book doesn't look right without a logo at the base of the spine. Um, and sometimes people just put an initial or something there. Sometimes they leave it off entirely. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't really make much difference. But for me, it's just that aesthetic. It doesn't look right unless there's a little something at the bottom of the spine. And because with the Rue, whatever it was, 12 years later or something, I was going to self-publish a book again, which I just hadn't done and said I wasn't going to do. I just went, oh, fuck it, I'm going to put the dragon. So I sort of photoshopped out the words that were part of the Blade Press logo and just kept the dragon head. And I just I just dropped that on the spine of the root. And so subsequently, because I decided that I would maybe now self-publish a few bits and pieces, whenever I do, I use that logo. And as much as anything else, it's basically an identifier that this is my self-published stuff. Um, the other side of that is... In, um, in in the gulf, there's, I didn't do it in the Rue because I didn't have that idea at the time, but where you have the, uh, where you have the title page of a book um, and you have this bit, oh, my camera's not good enough, but you have that bit where it talks about the publisher and the ISBN and stuff like that. If you look at that, it says underneath the ISBN, it's, it says 13th Dragon Books. Um, so I'm not actually planning to sort of incorporate a publisher name or anything like that. Um, but I'm a, on my on the other side of my life um, with kung fu and stuff. I'm one of fifteen dragon disciples of the Grandmaster of our style, um, and I was the thirteenth dragon as a disciple. And because the logo was a dragon head, I was like, I guess I could give it a name. So I just decided to call it Thirteenth Dragon Book. So because I'm the thirteenth dragon, so that anything that comes out with that logo and that name, that means that's that's me. That's a self-published book. So long answer, Ooh, long cool. answer to, to why that why that logo goes on there, but that's why. So whenever you see anything, you can just think this is Grey Matter Press, this one's PS Publishing, whatever. This one, that's me. Yeah. I actually didn't know that you uh, were published with Harper Collins in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, can you see up the Bound Obsidian and Reduction, the Alex Kane series, those three up there. They're um, there it is. They're buried in the box. Oh, there's a hard actually harbor calling boxes. <laughs> um, with the, the Alex Kane series, which is like the sort of dark urban fantasy slash horror trilogy that I wrote that has uh, uh, all the martial arts action and stuff like that. That's the one where the, the protagonist is this Australian underground MMA fighter. Um, it's published with Griffinwood Press in the US, which is a smaller press, but here in Australia, it, um, it's sold to HarperCollins Voyager imprint. So yeah, that, that's kind of that's my airport novel. That's the one that you, you know you see in bookstores, and it was it was in all the airport bookstores for a while. So I got to do that thing where when I was traveling, I go, hey, my book on a shelf in an airport bookstore. It was kind of cool. So, uh, but then they then Hidden City was the next book I wrote, and Huffcons didn't want it. So you know, there's publishing for you. <laughs> that's so weird. Yeah, man, I know. Yeah, it's funny how it goes. But you know, HarperCollins in Australia, HarperCollins have three main. They have the UK the US and um, Australia. And while they're all part of the same bigger company, they're also all individual sort of entities. So just because you sell to HarperCollins here doesn't mean you'll sell to HarperCollins there or or whatever. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's been great for me here. It's, it's, it's done wonders. It's, it's sold well. It's opened all kinds of doors for me. It's, you know, it's, it's been it's been great to work with HarperCollins here. Um, but working with some small press in the US is kind of similar in scale to working with HarperCollins in Australia just because of, you know, population size, business size, that sort of thing. I actually didn't know that. I just assumed if you were under one publisher, it was 
carried out globally. Yeah, no, not the case. And something else that we also discovered is that um, when we sold to HarperCollins here, and they actually, we, we so it's three books, Bound, Obsidian, and Abduction. Um, I Bound was ready to go. That's what we sent them to see if they would pick it up. Obsidian, I had written, but I just needed a bit of a polish, and I hadn't written the third book yet, but I knew where it was going. So when we when my agent was working and selling the books, um, we hoped that one of the publishers would pick up Bound and it would do well enough that they would subsequently then pick up the next two. Uh, as it turned out, HarperCollins um, offered on the trilogy based on the first book and two synopses, uh, which was great, except my son was due to be born in the October and they wanted book three delivered by January. And so I basically had to, to write the third book in the trilogy in six months, um, which was kind of okay because it was the third book in the trilogy and it was a terrifying deadline, but I just <laughs> sort of smashed it out. But the point I was going to make is we sold to we sold to HarperCollins Australia, which is the Australian New Zealand office. Turns out that most UK publishers can, even though it's not the same territorial area, they consider ANZ as part of the UK territory. So we subsequently learned that after we sold here, when we then went to try to sell the trilogy elsewhere, a couple of UK publishers were like, you know what, we would have loved this, but if we can't have ANZ, we don't want it because ANZ sales are part of their deal. So it means I didn't get a big sort of distribution publisher in the UK because we'd already sold to half a volunteer. So, yeah, it, publishing is weird and messed up and mixed up like that. It Often if you sell in the US or the UK, you will also sell into their regional offices or other publishers will pick it up because the US is such a big market that that's a big, that's a, you know, that's a solid hit kind of thing. The other way around doesn't necessarily work. If you sell to Australia, there's no guarantee you've got to sell elsewhere. Wow. That's, (laughs) that's a, (laughs) I would not, I would not even assume any of that. Wow. Thank you for that lesson, sir. And just because you sold to a publisher doesn't mean you stay with a publisher either. I mean, um, the Alice Kane series, did pretty well. The, the first two books both got nominated for two different awards. Um, the series has earned out, but it didn't go gangbusters, and so they're not they're, they're, they're happy to keep these books, but they're not really interested in the next thing kind of thing. So, There's yeah. a lot of interest in horror uh, films, though. Uh, the last one I remember specifically set in Australia was Carnage with Bilbo Baggins. I forget his name. Is it Andrew Freeman, I think? Anyone? No. Martin Freeman. Martin. Martin Freeman, yes. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie, but yeah. It's good. It's uh I mean, I think it's a zombie movie, but it's 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 bizarre. Okay, I'll have to check it out. It's on Netflix. Well, in the US actually. Uh, yeah, I've come to realize that Australia is like doesn't have hosts, for example, or at least you didn't for a while. Um uh, it's on Australian Shutter now. Oh, okay. Have you yeah. have you seen it? Host? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it. I thought that was fantastic. Which is interesting because that was a very, very British film. Very English film, that one. So. Yeah, yeah. the guy that, one of the dudes that wrote it, Jed Shepard, is like one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Yeah, I've chatted to him a little bit on Twitter, actually. He seems like such a nice guy. I, I just reached out and said, hey, can uh, you want to come on my podcast? He's like, all right. Then he invited two of his uh, actresses on with five, told me five minutes before, and I'm like, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I haven't listened to that one yet. I haven't caught up. But yeah, no, I remember now. I remember seeing it. Yeah. Have, you, have you released that one yet? Is that one out? Yeah, that was last year. 
Yeah, I'm so, like, seriously, I'm so far behind. Him. The last podcast I was listening to was from February last year. <laughs> so, I'm, honestly, I've got so far behind on stuff, which is a pain because I've got, yeah, it just becomes like a read pile. It becomes so big that you never catch up. This is the 66th episode we've recorded, but this will be episode 64. Um, wow, cool. Well, you guys should be proud of that. You've been doing a great job. I'm happy. I got a good friend out of it. And, uh, you know, we get to talk to people that teach us a lot all the time. So we would be happier if the entire 66 episodes hadn't happened entirely under COVID, but <laughs> you win some, you lose some. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, just think that when we finally get into a post-COVID world, you get to do some of that Brian Keane stuff, like where you just go to conventions and interview people in the hotel rooms and shit. That's so the idea. We'll, we'll, we'll do that one day, right? One day, let's let's say it now, one day we'll do a, we'll do a bar version of this yeah. and we'll be all in the same place. We'll drink some whiskey that- and we'll, we'll record one of these. That would be great. I mean, you mentioned earlier going to a, a convention in Providence. I mean, if I go out and hop in my car, I'm in Providence in 10 minutes. Um, oh, man, I fucking love that town. I've, I've yeah. never been before. So, yeah, that was I flew into Boston and then traveled down to Providence. And, and I got very lucky. Paul Tremblay, amazing guy, such a nice guy. We There was one day, one afternoon, uh, towards the end of the corner, the day after the con, and he, because he went to university there. He lived not far away. Um, and so he basically gave me a walking tour of Providence and took me to all the sort of H.P. Lovecraft places and, you know, the Shun House and all that sort of stuff. And it was just fantastic. So, yeah, I got a real soft spot for that town. Uh, same here, because uh, even though I'm in South Jersey now, my family, most of them are in Massachusetts. And oh. my, wa- my wife went to college in Providence. So um, I... You know, I was working full time, going to college and uh, both in Massachusetts and I'd see her and spend a lot of the time in uh, Providence and I, I love it. And there's some really good places there that might not jump out at uh, tourists. Um, so, yeah, man, I mean, Providence would be a great spot. And I got to have I got to have whiskey with you one day. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Why? Why did you get out? My plan was when, when I went when I came to Stokecon in twenty what was it twenty eighteen, I think yeah. Um, my plan was that I would have at least because the Australian scene is fantastic, but the Australian scene is the Australian scene, and it's fucking miles from anywhere. So it's kind of interesting. So I made this point is like you know I love going to the Australian convention, but at least once a year I'm going to go to start a, a convention that's somewhere else, something that's not in Australia. And so I kicked that off, and it, it's difficult because it's so expensive to get out of Australia because it's fucking miles from anywhere. Um, but I started that off when I went to Stokecon in Providence in 2018. Um, I got invited to be guest of honor at GeyserCon in New Zealand in 2019. So it's like, oh, that's cool. That took care of that one. That was one outside of the country for me. Uh, and then last year, Stokecon again was supposed to be in the UK. Um, so we were going to we were going to travel to that one. Um, so yeah, that, so that's my plan now. So at least then COVID, obviously. But once once this shit clears up, that that's still the plan. Is at least once a year try to get out of Australia to a convention. More often than not, probably the US uh, or sometimes the UK because that's where the sort of biggest concentration of you know our people are. Yeah, um, yeah. At least and, and maybe you know if I come to the come to the US, try to sort of do something where you can squeeze a couple of things in if they're not too far apart. You know, like scares the care of Merrimack or something like that, where I get to travel around a bit and see some people, see some things. So that's the plan. Do you go with your family, or is it just a solo trip? Uh, up uh, up until now, it's been solo trips, but that's mainly uh, because my son 
he's only seven now. Um, so, you know, like when he was only five years old when I went to uh, Stokicon. Uh, actually, he wasn't even five, right? He was, he was probably four and a half or something when I went out there. Um, so that sort of journey, that kind of distance and time away is a bit difficult. Uh, but also if I'm at a con, you tend to be kind of just buried in the con for three days. And so it would be a bit kind of mean on my wife to sort of go, go away on holiday and then just leave her with a, like a toddler for, for three days straight in a strange, in a strange country. Now he's like seven years old. Maybe, you know, we're unlikely to travel this year. Maybe next year he'll be eight years old. That's old enough to be able to, you know, Halinka and him can go and do stuff and have fun together. It won't be such a chore for her sort of while I'm doing a couple of days of con stuff. So I think that, that now the idea going forward is that I want to get out of the country at least once a year. I want to get to some of these conventions and we will probably turn that into a, a holiday. So, you know, maybe go to the US for two weeks. The first four days I'm going to do a con and then we get 10 days to just holiday together. That's something like that. I don't know. But, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the plan. I go to China every two years as well, which is another thing. Um, with, a, with the Kung Fu side of stuff, we were supposed to go at the end of last year, but obviously we didn't. Um, and up until now, I've been doing that on my own. And Halinka runs the school with me. She's my sort of second in command at the Kung Fu school. Uh, but she's been missing out on those trips to China because somebody has to, you know, you can't take a, a three-year-old to China and train eight hours a day for two weeks because, you know, everybody would go mad. But now he's, he does Kung Fu as well now. He does the kids' class. And so we'll get to the point, hopefully next time we go to China, we can all go and we can train together as well. So I guess that's the beauty of as you could sort of grow up a little bit. You get to do more with them instead of just trying to care for them while other stuff happens. You know? No, Brennan? Okay, I thought you were going to go. Uh. <laughs> See, yeah. you do this big exhale thing that makes me think you're going to say something. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna jump to uh, women, and we're we're at the one hour, almost forty five minute mark. I didn't want to miss out on talking about women in horror month. It's gonna oh, happen, yeah. uh, like a week after this episode airs. Yeah, this is gonna air like you know, yeah, yeah. like yeah, a week after. Time, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Br- Brennan, I know you got some questions for at least one good one. So, why don't you leave this one, man? So, I mean, as far as far as women in horror month goes, I don't know that it's a question, but I, I just like to kind of repeat the whole thing where it's a nice time to gear your reading towards all of the fantastic women in horror. And it's not a hard damn thing to do. You know, if you're if you're listening to this and you're having trouble finding um really, really excellent, talented, wonderful, engaging women horror writers, you're not looking hard enough. And um, and I get it. You know, I was there a couple of years ago looking at my shelves, which were very male and very white. Um, it, you know, it's the premier. I'm the premier example there of people who say, you know, well, I would just look for a good story and I don't care what the gender or the you know ethnicity of the author is. Um, and, and unfortunately, if you if you don't care, even if you really believe or if you really don't care, you're going to end up with mostly white males because that's what, you know, gets the front spot on that shelf. But, you know, the point is there's a lot of really, there are a lot of really great women horror writers out there. So, uh, you know, I'd love us to throw out a couple or, you know, more than a couple that should really be gracing your shelves all year round, should be gracing your TBR pile all year round. Um, Alan, you want to start us off and just name some people that you think, Anybody listening yeah. should be aware of and should be reading. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you completely. Like, is we do, we have this kind of natural default, and if you just don't do anything about it, you're just going to naturally probably fall into reading ninety percent straight white guys. Um, and you know, there's that mindset that oh, you know, I shouldn't have to go looking for it if it's good enough. Um, I, I should just find it anywhere. And it's like, well, no, that's bullshit. You do have to go looking for it. Like the editors who say, oh, I just buy the best stories. Like, no, fuck you. You need to go and seek out the best stories. And a lot of the time, people who are um, sort of historically repressed in those sort of things can almost self-reject, you know? Like they can almost... It, so many white dudes will submit that you do have to make an effort to sort through and find... Um, the good stuff from other people. And if you look at editors, um, people like Ellen Datlow or Doug Morano, and you look at the sort of anthologies that they put out and the amazing diversity and quality of stuff that they put out is proof that if you put a bit of effort into it, it is very easy to find amazing writing by non-white or non-male authors. Um, yeah, on, on that front, we, I mean, we, we, there are, we have amazing we have amazing writers in Australia. So I'll on this one, I'll stick to I'll stick to Australian writers and I'll throw a few names out that absolutely should be on your list. Um, one of my best friends and one of the best horror writers, regardless of gender or location, um, is Karen Warren, K-A-A-R-O-N uh, Warren. Uh, she's one of the best horror writers of this generation. She's just outstanding. Her work is just not like anything else. Um, and if you really want a good introduction to her work, she wrote a novel called The Grief Hole, which is just fantastic. It's, it, I guarantee it's not going to be like anything else you've read. And it, it, it's just, it'll be, it's beautiful. It's a fantastic book. Um, so I always talk about Karen. We've also got another wonderful writer, Margot Lanigan, um, who's often recognized more as a fantasy writer to some degree but holy shit she's a horror writer too when she when she sort of turns her mind to that um and you should really check out margot's work um and she's got a several short story collections out black juice is probably a good one to start with um then we've got angela slater um s-l-a-double-t-e-r slater but uh, pronounced later she's um again a little bit like myself, a, a sort of a broad range urban fantasy stuff right through the horror. Um, she does a lot of really weird, twisted fairy tale retellings, uh, but she also does just some straight up horror that's just, just fantastic. Um, she's got a great collection. Uh, I think originally it was with PS Publishing, so I think you can probably get the fancy hardcover from PS called Winter Children and Other Stories, but there's also a, um, a paperback from Brain Jar Press that's just out or just coming out, which is a, a Australian publisher that's just starting to do some really interesting stuff. Uh, so check out Angela Slater. Um, Joanne Anderton is uh, another incredible writer. She's um, she she's a she's a very good friend of mine, and I'm constantly giving her shit about you know trying to push her work further afield into better markets to get a bigger audience. Because she's an outstanding writer, um, and she does a lot of science fiction horror. Um, as well as straight up horror, she's got this mad brain for sci-fi as, as well as this weird, twisted horror. She wrote. She's got a collection called the Bone Chime Song and other stories, um, and that's just it's one of it's still one of my favourite short story collections, regardless of genre or author or anything else. It's an outstanding collection. Uh, and Lisa L. Hammett is another one. She's actually Canadian, uh, but 
Australian now. She lives down in down in Adelaide in South Australia. Um, and her writing is um, really interesting, lyrical. Uh, she, her and Angela Stayer actually wrote a book together, a collection called Midnight and Moonshine, which is like a retelling of the North myth um, in, in sort of a fantasy style. And that's tremendous. It's a brilliant book. Um, but Lisa's also got a, a collection of her own called uh, Bluegrass Symphony, um, which is a fantastic book. It's best to go in sort of not really knowing anything about where that comes from, but um, that's a, a fantastic collection of short stories. Um, I didn't write this down, so I'm just sort of pulling these from the top of my head. In, in <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure that you guys go ahead and name some more. I'll, I'll think of a couple more in the meantime. Real quick, that Angela Slater uh, collaboration, the retelling of the Norse myths, what was that called again? Uh, Midnight and Moonshine. That sounds one right up my alley. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting book. It's, uh, it's one of those books, it, uh, I think it, it won awards here, but every once in a while you find books that get awards or get award nominated everywhere you see them reviewed. They're just so positively reviewed and stuff, and yet they never seem to sort of like take off, you know, it happens to us all, it happens to all of us, it's always, you know, you always get the books you seem to drop off, you're like, man, that should have got more attention than it did. And I feel like that book for those two should have got way more attention than it did. It's so good. Um, and yeah, but maybe it's just sometimes these things maybe just a bit too different that they don't quite find their niche at the right time, you know, I don't know, but uh, but yeah, check it out. It's Midnight and Moonshine is really, really good. And the last time you were on here as well, you were uh, singing the praises of Karen Warren. And I know she's somebody who's, I I believe she's found a lot more success in Australia than right over here just yet. Uh, I could be wrong about that. And if I am, I uh, will, you know, eat that crow. But um, one of the, something that caught a lot of people's attention in, uh, in 2020 was uh, unnerving presses, rewind or die series. And, Uh, Their last entry in that series, the Midnight Exhibit Part 2, she had uh, a story in there. And I haven't gotten to it yet, but I'm very much looking forward to it. And it was cool Uh, to see her name up up on there. Yeah, check it out. uh, You're right to some degree. Um, She does have, um, she's made a bit of a splash in the UK as well, because she publishes with Angry Robot um, in the UK. Um, She's frequently published by Ellen Datlow. Um, So she's got stories in a bunch of Ellen's anthologies. So, um, yeah, Ellen's definitely sort of all across Karen's work, uh, but she absolutely deserved a wider audience. Uh, another good example, actually, I should have mentioned before, she wrote a novella that I think I think it got shortlisted for the Shirley Jackson last year. I might be wrong about that. But anyway, it's called Into Bones Like Oil, and that was a novella that came out through one of the small press, Meerkat Press, maybe. Um so if you're kind of looking for something that's a, a bit quick and easy and just a good intro to Karen's work without committing to a novel or trying to find her short story or something, just look for that. It's a standalone novella called Into Bones Like Oil, and it's, that's, that's a fantastic. They won a, they won a heap of awards in this mm. <laughs> So, Pat, if you don't mind, I'm going to throw a couple out, but I'm just going to throw a couple because I don't want to steal your list, man. Um, <laughs> if I If I just name American authors, unfortunately, we're, you know, couple hundred miles away from each other that's not going to really all right so (laughs) you know on the same page uh, on this uh, in the same you know breath as saying that you know we need to make sure that we're getting these authors into our piles not just in february but you know there's 11 other months in the year um 
we, we got to stop with the nonsense where we say, you know, my favorite woman author, my favorite female author. You know, it's like when, when yeah, I think of my favorite male author. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, my, my favorite male author is Stephen King. But no, it's 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 bullshit. And it's 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 one of those. I don't think we say it with malice. In fact, I know we don't for the most part, we don't say it with malice, but it's still like just the connotation there. It's 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 ugly. Um, my favorite author. Or, or at least one of my favorite authors is Haley Piper. And I don't need to put, you know, my favorite female author because her work stands up there, you know, with and above all of all of her other colleagues, regardless of their gender. Um, she, she is one of my favorite authors in general. The Worm and His Kings was easily my favorite book that came out last year. Really, really strong cosmic horror. Um rooted in humanity and frankly everything else she's put out has been just utterly fantastic uh laurel hightower and alan i know you just recently finished crossroads how fucking good was that book <laughs> interesting, yeah interesting that you mentioned both of those because um i've kind of known laurel a little bit around online she she was one of the people who died in the room as well um <laughs> but um she, but i'd never read her stuff before and i kept seeing people talking about Crossroads and it had been sitting on my Kindle for ages and I finally got around to reading it and fucking hell, it's a good book, man. It, that just, yeah, it's, it's a real punch in the heart, that book. And it's one of those things that you sit there reading it and you know what's going to happen and you can tell what's coming and she still does this masterful job of just stabbing you with exactly what you knew she was going to stab you with, which which is great, a real real skill. Um, and interesting that you should mention Hayley Piper too, because again, that's I haven't read her stuff, but that's a name that I keep seeing cropping up. And the, the woman is King, is that one? Yep. Yeah, that, that that's the one I keep seeing, and I it's caught my eye, and it's like, well, I guess that's going on the TBR as well. And uh, yeah, these people are these people are making waves. I think you'd really enjoy it, but then I'd sound ridiculous saying otherwise after I just told you it was my favorite book of last year. So. <laughs> True. Um, True. Let me throw out one more. I really love, you know, everything coming out of Sonora Taylor. Uh, she had Seeing Things coming out last year, uh, a novel, uh, and her short fiction is really excellent. Every time she shows up in, in an anthology, her story always kind of sticks out. Um, mm -hmm. Really, really good stuff. Pat, you want to throw a couple out? Yeah, not only one of my favorite authors, but one of my favorite people in general and one of the hardest working people I think could go against you can she could stand on her own is uh samantha koyesnik came up with true Cut crime last year um came out with her first edited anthology through grindhouse press uh put out her own publishing company last year with those two authors uh Haley piper and laurel hightower Everything she touches seems like it's gold. She and the reason why that is is because she busts her ass and she knows what she's doing. Um, she'll be around for a long time. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And I read the time last year actually. It was a good book. So good. Uh, not a knock on anyone else, but you know, you just click with some people more for whatever reason. Brennan's is Haley, and mine's Sam. Um, other authors that I like that I read last year is uh, Dong Ji Gambepko. She is Ed Kurtz's fiance. Um, only read a short fiction. I got a book that she sent me that I'm going to read next, probably ne start next week. It's not super long. Um, another one that should get talked about a little bit more, or maybe it's just me, is uh, 
Mary San Giovanni, man, she's she's good at not nonfiction and fictions. Just uh, she's pretty much the queen of cosmic horror. But maybe yeah, I'm wrong. Mary's been around so long too. Like, like was, Brian, she's Brian's partner, but she's been around. She wrote for Dorchester back in the day, I think, or one of those. One of those. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, she's she's a she's a legend in her own right. She's absolutely yeah. should be more widely read. Yeah, I was about to say, I agree. I was going to say, maybe I'm wrong with how many people talk about her, but I'm, just from what I've seen, I feel like she's not talked enough, about enough. And I'll just list two more, otherwise I won't shut up. Uh, v. Castro and C, uh, Cena Palayo, they're both amazing Latinx writers. And um, uh, V. Castro is one of my favorites. Cena, I'm more new to, but she seems like she's going to be someone that I want to buy everything from. Children of Chicago comes up through Paula's books i think it's paul's books uh in february and i got that in pre-order very excited uh what she writes about is um it's it's heartbreaking uh she used to be i believe she used to be a journalist um and she wrote about some real shit real crime and uh it's very palpable in her words. So yeah. I'll, I'll I just found her at the end of last year as well. I just came across her work quite recently. So I've only read a couple of little short pieces, but yeah, she's got some jobs. Huh? I'll stick to those. There's there's a lot of other ones, but um, I, I mean, search those ladies out. Oh, you know what? I'll name one UK author that is a, is a real sweetheart, and she was kind enough to make commit. Not commission. Make these for me after I read Lex H. Jones's <laughs> The Old One in the Sea. Uh, I read her, what was it, the one that came out? Um, oh, God, I'm going to butcher the title. It came out years ago, and I can't think of it. Um, something to do with bones. Uh, Naming All the Bones. I believe that's it. Uh, Naming All the Bones by Laura Morrow. Let me see. Naming All the Bones. Just double-checking. Um. For those that haven't read Laura, she's got quite a few books out. One that came out last year, I believe 2020, was um, through Undertow Press or Publications. I can't remember all the time who is press and goes by publication. Undertow's publication. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was you just very... got to make your best guess. All right. Well, just say Undertow. We all know what you mean. (laughs) Came up through Undertow as well received for a reason. She's an excellent writer, very, very smart person, and uh, she's very kind. Uh, So, yeah, I'll I'll end with Laura. Um, Cool. Yeah. We put a blog post up uh, just a couple of days ago where um, I just grabbed a whole slew of um, uh, women in horror from my Twitter feed and a couple of, because I'm president of the Australian Horror Writers Association. So um, I grabbed a few of the people from from our association who are doing good stuff and a whole slew of people I follow on Twitter. And I put that blog post up and then I just said to people, if I've missed you, just introduce yourself in the comments and just, you know, just say hi. Um, so if, if people want to just go to, my, just go to my website and check out the latest blog post there, um, you'll find a whole list of cool people, cool women in horror there. <laughs> so we'll have that on the uh, show notes or the edit, the episode notes. Uh, we'll have a link is, uh, does she have like a store? I'm not even sure it would be. Yeah, the website with a gallery and stuff like that. It's just halinka.com.au, H-A-L-I-N-K-A.com.au. So we'll have that on the uh, episode notes too. Episode notes aren't long for those that uh, don't even 
even look at them. Uh, I know that some shows have very, very long notes. I don't personally read those. <laughs> if it's short, I'll read it. Uh, ours have a quick description of our guests or guests, and they have uh, applicable um, links too. Yeah, so, I, you know, honestly, when I listen to podcasts, I tend to, the only reason I ever go to show notes is usually to, to look for a link that got mentioned. I, uh, you listen to the podcast, you kind of hear everything that's on there. Yeah. yeah. So I normally only go to the notes if I need a link. <laughs> yeah and that's why i've actually i don't think i've ever mentioned that before so i mean maybe it's new to someone that's been listening to a while but i promise you'll never have a long long note because they're they're boring to me anyways um pat i'm gonna jump in and i want to mention a few more people that we didn't mention uh, you know just in case listeners took those 20 names of uh women in horror and said that's not enough um first of all um you mentioned cena palayo um, her poetry collection into the forest and all the way through, uh, made the preliminary list for poetry, uh, on the Stoker awards. And, you know, for all the reasons, it, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because all the reasons you talked about, like in her work, that's really epitomized in that book. Uh, just very, very real stuff, poetry about missing persons cases, mostly centered around women of color. Um, it's, it's, it's a can't miss collection. It's great. Uh, we got to talk about Jessica guess, you know, everything she does, her, her novella and her short, short stories are really wonderful. Um, Michelle Garza and Melissa Layson, the sisters of slaughter, everything they do is definitely worth checking out. Uh, Renee Miller has a few books out through the rewind or die series. And I believe a few more th- out through unnerving separately, uh, that are really excellent. Gemma Moore, uh, Lisa Quigley, uh, if, if anybody on here hasn't read things by Tanana Reeve do, oh my God, what are you doing? Go fix that immediately. Like <laughs> well, the, what was her collection, her collection summer, what was it called? Uh, I think it has the word ghosts in it. It's, Ghost it's on the shelf behind me, but yeah, something like that. Something like that. That one. Fucking hell. Yeah. And um, I haven't read it yet, but I've been meaning forever to uh, ghost summer, by the way. Um, yeah. I've been meaning forever to get to her book, The Good House. I just keep hearing these great things about uh, mm-hmm. Gwendolyn Keist, Catherine Cavendish, uh, Stephanie Ellis, uh, everything that Jill Girardi is doing with Candisha Press. They are putting out uh, these annual anthologies that are just all women. And all the stories in them are fantastic. Uh, E.V. Knight with The Fourth Whore. Uh, that was another book that got on the preliminaries for the Stokers. Uh, and I'll throw out Nico Bell, too, with, mm. with Food Fright, just so I'm not fucking sitting here talking all night, <laughs> naming every author that I've read in the last, like, two years. Natalie Edwards, too. I mean, I'll just throw yes. her name up there. She's a crime writer. Alan, she's kind of like you, honestly, man. She's like kind of like the female version of you. Uh, UK-based crime writer under Natalie Edwards. Under her, for horror, she goes by T.C. Parker. Oh, okay. I haven't heard of her before. I'll check it out. She, another another awesome person, man. There's so many cool. great people. It's it's incredible. We've, we've talked about this a lot in the earlier episodes, me and Brennan, but when you start getting into the whole indie scene, man, you just keep getting, it's quicksand, but it's a lot of good things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can, you can get lost in there and stay lost. It's good. So we're, we have come up on the two hour mark. So uh, I would like to go to what are you currently reading followed by the two closing uh, questions. But if you guys have anything to throw in now, please do so. 
Uh, well, I, I can't I can't let Alan go to what are you reading without asking him for an update on the Rue sequel. <laughs> Alan, Alan uh, is Alan, Alan could kick our ass yet for some reason he listens to us. I don't know he why. Could, he could put us in that book and kill us again. Yeah, um I don't I don't know. Uh, people have talked about the Rue sequel. It's this, this I, I learned quite some time ago in this career that when people really enjoy something, they want more of it, which is entirely understandable. We're all the same. Um, and if if you have characters or if you have a setting or if there's something that you really dig, you're like, great, I want more of that. But it's great to, I mean, from make business sense as well, to sort of indulge that to some degree. Um, because, you know, if people are keen on it, you know they're going to buy it. But equally, I've always said that I, I'm never going to just do that because um, it's popular. I'm going to do it again. Popular because if I just do it again because it's popular without having the passion for a story that I'm telling, it's it's, it's not going to be very good. The, and the main thing is, it's not going to be as good as the thing that people loved in the first place. And then you're just going to end up losing all those people that you you get. I would. It, it's kind of cruel in a way, but I would rather people carried on clamoring for something and didn't get it than clamored for something and got it and were disappointed. Um, which is a long way round of saying that the Rue was a surprise hit and it was a heap of fun and I'm really glad so many people got behind it. Uh, and lots of people keep asking me for a sequel. Like people keep saying, I need to write one with drop bears, I need to write one with killer wombats, I need to write, um, you know. Oh, and it's if if a good idea comes to me, I, I then, yeah, I'll do it. Um, but at this point, um, I don't have plans to because I don't have... Uh, that sort of real sort of passion to write something. It's quite possible that I might do it at some point because I did deliberately leave the end of it a little bit open, um, but I tend to do that with everything I write just in case it is popular and I do get good ideas so that I can go and go back to that. There's a couple of things that, uh, that I've sort of closed off completely um, and can't go back to, and I always feel a bit strange about it. To be honest, you can resurrect anything. I mean, DC Comics and Marvel, they kill people all the time and just bring them back. So, um you know the, the options are there, but uh, so yes, short answer. Currently, no plans for a follow up to the Rue, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. But it won't be anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you write it, I'll read it. But uh, you know, not to disappoint the yeah, whole uh, genre out there. Yeah, if it I'll doesn't happen, up, yeah. If I come up with a good idea and I like, oh, hang on, now that would be cool. I'll do it for sure. Yep. So let's jump to uh, currently re and you know what? Actually, I asked Alan that uh, <laughs> about the sequel too, and I feel like a dick for it now because I'm sure everyone asked him. <laughs> oh, don't, don't! But yes, I have been asked by many people. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, I wish I could just go. You know what? Yeah, bang! Let's get another one. Let's do it. And that, but I, I don't want to disappoint. So you know, I need it needs to be a good story. I could literally just write another thirty thousand words of crazy demonic kangaroos tearing people to pieces in many ways it might be enough but i want it to be more than that i want it to be a, a story that has a point as well you know so yeah give it time never say never we covered that in the first episode which is episode 14 i think it was sorry for cutting you off brennan and um i think anyone interested and in, that has not listened to that episode yet it's worth listening to because it, it's it's carnage but there is very deep in disturbing realities and messages behind it. Mm, 
Yeah, I don't every, I don't deliberately sort of set out to proselytize or put messages or anything into stories, but I can only really write passionately about stories when I'm writing about something. And even if it's a demonic kangaroo tearing people's heads off, then there's it's for some reason it's about something, and that's where I get the story and characters from. So yeah, that tends that tends to be how it works. Mm-hmm. Brian, I cut you off. I'm sorry, sir. Oh, I was just going to say that a uh, a duck billed platypus story would write itself, but yeah, you know they you know they have venomous spines, right? They I know they that on their back feet. Th- there's <laughs> a reason that people talk about Australia and all the fucked up yeah. creatures that live there. It's like <laughs> Pokemon like dropped out of the sky. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like uh, Pokemon Go, but you don't need your phone for that game, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So let's jump to uh, what are you currently reading? Start off with you, sir. Alan, sir. <laughs> uh, right. Well, I literally, like I mentioned earlier, I literally just finished uh, Brian King's End of the Road last night. Um, the uh, Next month, so where, what are we now? There's about a week left of January. Um, <clears throat> so the, <clears throat> excuse me, the next thing I'm planning to read, I've got Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country sitting on top of the TV up. Um, when I sit down later on tonight after... Adine's in bed and everything settles down. I'm going to keep. I'm going to break into that one because my plan then after that book, once we hit February, I'm only going to read women in February. Um, so I've got a couple of other things lined up um, for that. But uh, yeah, so the, so I literally finished one last night. I am also reading um, currently Tim uh, Wagoner's. Hang on, what's it called? Writing in the Dark. Tim Wagoner put out this book, Writing in the Dark. From yeah, there it is. Um, so. I've been, which is which is great, you know. This uh, <clears throat> all about, you know, writing dark fiction, basically, and it's really interesting. So I've been picking my way through that um, a little bit here and a little bit there, not really sort of voraciously reading it, but just picking it up. I quite often tend to do that with nonfiction. I'll pick it up, read a few pages, put it down, and it'll take, you know, I'll read it over the course of a month or six weeks or something. Uh, so that one's on the go, uh, and I'm starting Lovecraft Country tonight. Nice. What about uh, what about you, Brennan? Um. Real quick, I'll just say we had Tim on the show a few months ago, and uh, I loved uh, Writing in the Dark. I thought that was an awesome book. Really, a lot of good stuff to think about. Um, great guy, and he knows so much. Well, and, yeah. and I'm interested, you know, that you're reading it because I, I really, you know, obviously I can only view it from one perspective, but I felt like it did a good job of approaching, um, giving advice to people who were new new to the craft like like i am uh but also offering a bit to people who had been at it for a little bit longer like like yourself for instance um and you know to hear that you're finding stuff in it too is 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 really cool yeah and then the other thing to to remember is that even when you've been doing something a long time and you know it really well it's good to be reminded of stuff that you already know because it, it sort of reinvigorates things or makes you go, oh, hang on a minute, I haven't really thought about that for a while. It makes you sort of change your, your angle of perspective on things. You tend to become, like, we can be really creatures of habit. And we, we when you lock into a rut and you lock into habits, then you, you lose some of the sharp edges off of what you do. And so sometimes it's good to be reminded of stuff you already know. Uh, and there's plenty of stuff in there that I hadn't thought about before. I didn't really know that makes me go, oh, yeah, okay, interesting. You know, there's, there's stuff to be found for sure. Yeah, to be asked to look at it from a new perspective. Um, I had this book show up in the mail tonight, um, featuring our very own Patrick McDonough. Um, I have not gotten to that story yet because I am a creature of habit and I can't 
I can't read an anthology out of order. I'm just, I'm literally not capable of it. Um, but <laughs> editors editors curate anthologies for a reason. Exactly. Uh, and I respect the editor's view, so I do the same thing. I will read that's an anthology. It. That's it. I'm being respectful. Um, yeah. But but I, I I love it so far because they split it into five different categories. Uh, all the all the stories range from like two to five pages. So it's you you have that habit of uh, you know when I read an anthology, I read a story and then I put it down. I go I come back I see another one the next day. But this one is I read a story. I'm like ah the next one's only like three pages. I'm just gonna do one more. I'm just gonna do one more. I'm just gonna. So I mean I I had it come in the mail like you know an hour before we started this, and I'm halfway through the first part already. Um, it's it's really cool. And I'm also reading. Uh, I got um, Clementine's Awakening from uh, Silver Shamrock from uh, Jennifer Susie, who we're gonna have on the show uh, next month. And I, I'm really liking it so far. I'm only like two or three chapters in, but um, it's got that kind of slow burn ghosts in the basement horror. Uh, I'm digging it. Cool. Patrick, how about you? I'm also reading Clementine's Awakening. Um, only like two chapters ahead of you, so you're going to breeze by me real quick. Um, I'm reading The Searching Dead. Where is it? Hold up. I got it. The Searching Dead by Ramsey Campbell. Oh, first time reading it myself um and what else i had uh no that's i think that's it i was gonna jump to a new one but i'll probably wait a week um and i just placed an order with kenzie jennings she uh uh for tonight i'm placing an order after we're done for red station um so That'll be exciting. Hopefully I can read that sooner than later. Um, then who knows? I mean, my TBR is right in front of me, but I I, I don't know which book I'm going with. Pro- probably focus on like, you know, females for February. Uh, I mean, I do all the time, but I just want to make sure I definitely get a few females down in the beginning of February. Well, if you need some uh, some some recommendations, we just named off like fifty authors. So <laughs> yeah, you can keep going for the rest of the year. <laughs> Let's go to what's uh, what's next for Alan Baxter. Uh, what is next? Good question. <laughs> um, well, interestingly enough, I don't actually have uh, any imminent new releases, which is um, the weird kind of. Limbo that I don't like being in because when a book's just come out, like the Gulf just came out this month, and um, it's nice to sort of be talking all about that. But then there's uh, usually working on something else that's that's like next off the rank in six months or something like that. Whereas I have a few things that are out there and things that are going on, but nothing that has an actual um, sort of release date at this point, which is a bit of a strange place to be. Um, but uh, I, there's uh, there's a novel out on submission. I've got some other bits going on, and I'm currently working on finishing the draft of this um, of this next book that I'm I'm working on. And so, with any luck, sometime over the next sort of few weeks or months, some things will come in, and there will be a next thing to look forward to. So uh, there always is. You know, I'm always working on something. There's a couple of things I can't talk about yet. So um, yeah, fingers crossed there'll be there'll be news and things going on, but. Rest assured that in the meantime, I'm busily working away at creating it. So there's always stuff to come. Fantastic. Before we ask the final question, Brennan, got anything left? No, I think we're ready. 
Alan, anything you want to cover that we haven't uh, talked about yet? Uh, I don't think I'm all good. Where can, where can people follow you? Uh, you can the, you can find everything you need to know at my website. You can just go to alanbaxter.com.au. Um, everything you'll find there, book covers, you click on a cover, it tells you about the book, you'll find my social media links and stuff. Or otherwise, I just spend way too much time on Twitter. So you'll just find me <laughs> at Alan Baxter on Twitter. I'm, I'm addicted to that, that platform. I, I love Twitter. It's great. So, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll find me there all the time. <laughs> I'm addicted to it too. It's 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 <laughs> awful. So is Brendan. He's laughing, but so is he. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. You curate. You know, you need to create, curate your feed. There, you need to sort of take care of stuff. And just, I block and mute with abandon. Like you know, fuck <laughs> it. There's so many idiots and losers. I'll just cut them off. But there are yep. so many great people there, and it's a great, it's a great place. It's vibrant and it's it's active and it's going on. And there's so many cool, talented people out there to hang out and chat with. So. Agreed. So, so many good people, but you know, how much more writing could the three of us get done? <laughs> I want to think about it, man. Nope. Put it on the back burner. That, yeah. Having said that, that sort of thing is actively a part of writing because that's experience, mm. that's life and that's interaction. And you draw back on that stuff when you write. So if you never do any of that stuff, you end up sitting there writing stories about writers sitting there writing stories. So, <laughs> but it's also marketing. So yeah, well, that's true. it's, yeah. it, it's yeah. value. There's value to it. I'm yeah, jo- yeah. I joke, but yeah, it's necessary. It's true. Yeah, you gotta be you gotta be out there. That's right. Mm-hmm. So this was episode two, season two. For all those just joining, go to episode one where we talked to Brian Keene. We talked about his book End of the Road. This episode, it's excellent. Alan, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. Uh, you have to come back once a year. That's in our contract. <laughs> yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great fun. I'll be happy to come back. Absolutely. And for those that are wondering what's next after this uh, very long episode, we got Don Dario. It will be four days after this. So this is uh, coming. This is coming out the twenty fifth of January. Don's will be the twenty eighth. Followed by Ramsey Campbell and Laird Barron. Cool, Alan. Thank you. Again, so much for your time, Brennan. Thank you for joining me, sir. And listeners, appreciate you. Well, actually, viewers too now. Appreciate you spending your time with us. Have a very good day, good night, or good evening. Thank you, sir. Deadhead space.